0: na 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 Digital noise. Oh, stop making all that fuss. I need a hand. W- what's wrong? Oh, I can't get these tights on. Come here and grab hold of something, see if I can wedge everything in. Wait a minute. I'm the Batman of digital noise.
1: Oh. Here, I brought you these yellow tights, though. Ooh, comfortable.
0: Where are they supposed to go? Um, you know, places. <laughs> I need a beer before that happens. (laughs) Oh, believe me. I've got your
1: special beer all set up. Yep. Hold on. Let me just put this in here. There you go. Don't worry about the foaminess.
0: Hmm. Tastes like sleepy time.
1: And welcome to Digital Noise Episode Murmur. Murmur. <laughs> I'm Chris. I'm Richard. And we have so many movies and TV shows to cover this week, it's just kind of ridiculous.
0: Is it almost Christmas, Spiny Chumps?
1: It certainly feels like like some rich guy's Christmas this, this <laughs> week, you know? It's like you get you open so many presents you just get tired of opening them after a while. You're like, Can we just put this off until, you know, Valentine's
0: Day or something? Because <laughs> I quite <laughs> frankly, it's gonna take me two years to get through all of these. It's got Esque. It's like, oh, another day, another, oh my goodness, how many envelopes. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, well, um.
1: <laughs> uh, let me uh, start off by just saying to people uh, first off, thank you for choosing Digital Noise for all your home video review needs. We hope to be here for a long time. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please uh, leave them on the comments page. And please refrain from being dicks. Why be dicks? And maybe look up what precisely, or ask someone else what accounts counts as being a dick or not before you actually post something if you're not 100% sure.
0: It's a wild idea, but you might just want to go out on that limb. <laughs> just,
1: just a bit. Um, we, of course, uh, have a bunch of links on our homepage. If, if you're seeing this on iTunes, you're not seeing it. So go to the actual page and you'll see a bunch of pictures of all the movies we're covering this week that link to... The Amazon page for them. Now, here's the trick. If you click on any of those links, we and buy that product, we get a kickback from that product. But here's the second kicker. The most important one in the Christmas Ooh. season is that if you start shopping on Amazon from any of clicking on any of our links, anything you buy while you're continuing to surf Amazon from that point on from that original page is going to give us a kickback. So what we're saying is basically just buy stuff. Yeah, if you're you know you're gonna be buying stuff for people on Amazon, please start with one of our links because we will get a little percentage back. You're helping us out. You're making the world a better place, let's face it.
0: I wouldn't I wouldn't stretch it that far, but, <laughs> but you you're know making, what, helping us out. You're making our world a better place. Yeah, you're, that's keep, true. You're, you're keeping us alive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah so you know what I haven't actually done this week? Is uh, look to see what the questions from fans were. Oh, random encounter. Random but I, encounter. I did. I did actually remember to to ask the questions. But what we're going to do here, as soon as I get my computer to respond to me, which could take a second. Um, Technology. <laughs> we're going to take a look. Go out. Walk out to the curb in our bathrobe and pull open the the letter. got mail. Thank you, Torgo. That was very kind of you to give the little introduction thing there. And let's see. Uh, the, it's a little rusty. It's stuck, clearly, <laughs> as I'm trying to yank it not a, open. Not see, at all filling for time. Not at all. What are you talking about, Richard? Technology. That's ridiculous. I'm a yank, see? Oh. And you're a limey. What are you, Brian? <laughs> okay, red coat, yeah. settle down. <laughs> Let's see. I still need some more time. What other Britishisms can I think of? That's all I can think of. Something pitter. Something about pitter, pepper pots. I don't know. Uh, okay, so we got a bunch of questions here, and... Well, actually, we don't have a huge amount, but we have some. Ooh, hang on, what are you talking about? No, that's pretty good, actually. All right, Richard, what do you see up here that you like?
0: Ooh, uh... Ooh... What movie purchase made you feel ridiculous? I bought the special edition Watchmen Blu-ray with Owlman ship. I don't even like the film. <laughs> Thank you Dennis Marmalwey. That's a good one. Why did you buy it then if you didn't like the film? Cuz the the owl ship. I It's I, just a thing for the I owl ship. I don't know.
1: Ship. You bought it entirely for the opening credits. Yeah, which were indeed awesome.
0: Yeah. Um I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I'm fairly shameless uh, about my purchases. Um uh and also fairly picky because, you know, I'm a journalist. Don't wear that much money. Um I'll, I'll probably say, um, well, more that people are ashamed on my behalf. I do have the nice box set of Titanic, um, which I love that film. I don't care what you say. Shut up. What are you? What about you? <laughs>
1: uh, I actually enjoy Titanic too. I don't care. Yeah, I think it's Good extremely grief. well made and fun movie. That yes, has some holes in it, but man, like you know, Titanic, nobody goes over movies with a more fine tooth comb than people who are mad that other people like a movie they don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know, looking for things wrong with it. Yeah. You're like, seriously. <laughs> I bet you I can pick lots of movies you Titanic haters totally love that have more holes in them than the Titanic, Yeah. Uh, which has quite a few because it's on the ocean floor.
0: Oh, so, uh, too soon.
1: I, anyway, I'm not going to go off on a rant there about Titanic because I'm just not emotionally invested in it, quite frankly. But um, Rose, uh, I got to say, although most of my movies these days, I'm just getting sent from the companies I don't do a lot of buying anymore probably the most egregious like kind of like making sure nobody was watching me while I bought something was Xanadu
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm ashamed on your behalf
1: Uh, well you know it was it was a formative film for me I loved roller skating I loved electric light orchestra I loved tap dancing and Gene Kelly Uh, I you know kind of I liked things that were science fictiony it was like all the right stuff and I fell instantly
0: madly in love with it. It is, it is nothing like all the right stuff. <laughs> it is as far removed from that film as ooh, one could possibly imagine. Ooh, ooh, Stop.
1: Everybody all around the world. Next
0: question. <laughs> Next question, Richard. What is it? Okay. Uh, Lucas Ridge. Uh, what anthropomorphized creature would you like to see in a Disney Pixar animated film that hasn't yet been touched? Don't, Don't touch creatures, that's weird. Yeah, that's wrong. For me, I'd like to see a story about an octopus limb that gets cut off from its own and tries to find its way back. That is appalling. That is a very Uh, odd thing to think. Uh. Uh, uh,
1: I don't... Huh. I admit, this is not something I have thought a lot of, spent a lot of time thinking about. Well, you've got to now. I mean, Disney now owns all the, uh, you know, all the franchises, pretty much all of them, I think. Right? They own them all, don't they? Yeah. I think all of them. So why not do a Toy Story spinoff with just Batman and Star, or not Batman, but uh, I guess Marvel toys and, and uh, 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 Star, Wars, Star Wars, Wars toys and Indiana Jones toys all going on an adventure together and then fighting on about what kind of adventure they should go on.
0: That's Toy Story 4. Yeah. A.K.A. the saddening. It's probably more like the Lego movie too, but still. Ooh. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, this does remind me of my favorite underrated uh, uh, Disney movie, which is Brother Bear which i uh, I'm kind of slightly sad more people haven't seen that because it's actually pretty damn touching um that had great anime. that had great anthropomorphized moose in it which would have been my next suggestion <laughs> um I don't know i uh, I it, generally I'd like to see Disney do something um in Australia and Uh, You know, rescuers down under doesn't count uh, in this circumstance. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, something to do do with the Australian mythology, because there's some really fun stuff that I think they could... If they give into their darker tendencies, I think Disney could do something really interesting with those. So I'm going to go with Kangaroo.
1: Our old spill compatriot C. Robert Cargill actually wrote a book called Queen of uh, Dark Shadows. I think that's what it's called, right? Is it Queen of Dark Shadows, Queen of Long Shadows? I no,
0: um, uh, Queen of Dark Things.
1: Dark Things, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I was getting mixed up with British te- or No, with you're getting the mixed up with this first, first book, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, Dreams and Shadows. Dreams and Shadows, yes. Yeah. Uh, but the second book takes place largely in the Australian Outback, book back and deals heavily with like the mythology of that. It's actually pretty interesting. It's a really good book. Yeah. He was saying, his, you know, as far as I know, it's one of the only books I've ever read that does deal with that mythology. So
0: there, there are others, but it's one of the very few American ones. Uh, Neil Gaiman touches on some of that stuff hmm. in some of his, in some of his work. So as, yeah, as but, you would imagine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Go Cargill. Anyway, uh, one last question here. And, uh, boy, there's actually a couple good ones here. Well, I will say to Bradley Martin, who says that he lives in a small town in Canada. His local theater's not showing the Babadook, Whiplash, or Birdman. Boy, that sucks. Is there anything I can do to bring films like this to my theater or have to wait till some kind of Canada VOD service picks them up? Well, you live in a small town in Canada. It doesn't matter if it's Canada, America, wherever, you're kind of fucked. Unless you have a theater that specifically, like plays art type films which case it probably would be something you could do yeah. but if there's not and there's just like the one local you know chain you're you're kind of shit out of luck unless you can find out that they have a Tug screening yeah. so you might look on the Tug page I think it's t- just Tug.com t- yeah. U- T-U-G-G and see if any of the movies you want to see actually are in fact uh, you know available on there to be pushed to our local theater theater but of course then you've got to find enough people in your small town willing to actually uh sign up and say yes i'd buy tickets for that
0: yeah and you know your other options are one what i did when i was a lot younger we just get we just get really really friendly with the booking team at your local cinema um which is how showing my age i managed to get them to uh, show streets of fire Years and years and years ago, I was like, no, you haven't got anything else playing that week you really want to put on. Why don't you put that? And they're like, oh, okay. Which which was a wide commercial release, but not so much in Britain. Not in the north of England, it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. Uh, and the other option is, you know, uh, look into starting your own film club. True. That is, a, that is a serious option. And I think tools like Tug make that a lot, a lot easier. If you can, you know, and, and they don't have to be big. You look at something like, you know, Ragtag Cinema in, uh, Columbia, Missouri, uh, which is tiny. It looks like somebody's front room, but. You know, they, they've they got a really good reputation. You, and you build that up. Yeah, it can be a bit of work, but you can suddenly find that you're shaping a film community, which then goes to the cinema and goes, we're really interested in this. Look, we can guarantee you're going to sell this many tickets. it worth you getting it in for just one evening. Yeah. So, you know, those are two options that are definitely worth, worth you know, at least poking at. Well, with you can with you know,
1: start something like that and be a non-profit. Yeah,
0: yeah mean, that's, the big, that's, a, that's the big thing. Or you can just move to a bigger city. Well, which option, if you're like option really, 3, if you're
1: really into alternative film, my friend. I might say that might be your best bet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know in uh Montreal they have uh, a fanta-, uh, fanta- uh Fantasia Fest every year, which is like 2 weeks of crazy movies, just saying. Yeah. You know that town supports smaller film. Anyway, uh, we're going to close the letterbox. Thanks a lot, Torgo. Just stay in there for another week. Here's a sweater. And uh, don't start any fires. And move on to our favorite part, the raison d'etre of digital noise. The, the reviews. reviews. And boy, that's probably good because we have so oh much my God. stuff to talk about this so week. Some of this
0: may be a little bit short, folks. Just be warned because <laughs> this is the 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 towering stack in front of us may well collapse and take down the building. You think? This is insane. This is, We are truly in the run-up to Christmas, so uh, in the midst of all the stuff that's trying to sneak out just because it's like, well, people are going to be in the, in the stores and looking at stuff, there is also a shit ton of <laughs> really, really impressive re-releases and stuff which is being put out just in time for Christmas.
1: And uh, we are going to start off by talking about the Lamberto Baba, son of the great Mario Baba. I believe his first film which was Demons, which even though it has Dario Argento's name all over it. In much bigger letters. <laughs> yeah, in much big, bigger, the same color as the, the actual title, whereas down at the bottom it's like, oh yeah, it's also awesome. Uh, 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 Argento, in fact, this was the first film appearance of his daughter, I believe? Or was that Demons 2? No, it's Demons, Demons 2, 2. Which we're also
0: reviewing as yeah. well, Demons well, 2. Well, they are coming out as a pair, and they are basically the same film. Yes, yes, they are, <laughs> they are effectively these exactly the same movie. I mean, even down to
1: using the same cast members in different roles. Um... Not even that different roles.
0: Uh, this is this is uh, your classic Italian horror. Uh, the first film. Uh, people go to a, a special weird screening of a film late at night. Uh, of this odd film that causes odd things to happen. And then demons start bursting out of people's chests, and as everybody they, gets killed. As they do. And then in the second film, it's exactly that plot, but it's in an apartment complex instead. Yeah. This is, you know, they really just went, okay, well, we did the first one as a sealed bottle thing. Now we've got a little bit more money and we can actually do it, like, outside of one location. There, you know, Where do you think this stands in the canon of... of italian horror well all right so this
1: is kind of the defining fast zombie if you will sort of italian horror film um like zombie by fulci is the defining like slow zombie one no question which was originally uh it was released as dawn of the dead 2 when it came out over there uh in fact I, i believe that the uh the soundtrack is by uh uh goblin to that isn't it yeah Okay, yeah. and and then I I, I want to say, uh, who was it that, co- that they would list as co-written as Dawn of the Dead?
0: Oh. It was an Italian director. Yeah, it yeah. It
1: was like one of these guys did as well. There's a big crossover with the Romero zombies and those. Now, Demons is not a zombie film, but much like 28 Days Later, it kind of is a zombie film, too. Yeah. It's got a lot of the same aesthetic where people get bitten or scratched and then they turn into the things here they're a lot more hideous they've got bulging eyeballs and sacks of i don't know what blowing out pus on their face and huge hideous teeth and the it's the gore level is significantly increased over any of those other films except maybe day of the dead yeah um
0: this also has some very ingenious kills there are some really both of these you know, and, and yeah, yeah, they're, they are the same movie. Uh, I think that the the demons has a little bit of an edge over demons 2 as oh, a quality yeah. of a horror film. Yes, but they're both really effective. They're because they're they're that rare combination of gruesome and creepy, which very few people manage to manage to pull off. And they, there's no comedy punch pulling. I mean, you know, I'd compare them. Arguably, both in you know because you know time periods and everything else, to um, the original Evil Dead, and even that first one, which is a more straightforward horror movie than the sequels, that has a few moments where it's clear they're having some fun. This isn't. This is gruesome, and it, it's all the more effective for it.
1: Yeah, very true. Um, and they also have this, they have the color scheme of Italian horror where yeah. it's like everything's very bright colored and swaths of lighting that changes in bright colors when something scary starts to happen. I mean, it's very, it's argentoish yeah. in that sense, to be sure. I mean, the Bava was basically like, it, it feels like, like Poltergeist in the sense of like, yeah, Toby Hooper's directing it, but Spielberg's standing behind him the entire time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, this feels kind of like in that same, uh, way. It's, it's, Got this weird sort of, especially the first one. This weird sort of culty appeal, and the fact that it's all these people who get locked into this mysterious, like Art Deco movie theater that has you know just weird shit throughout it, and that they're watching a movie that about some kids finding this demon match, getting scratched by it, and they turn into demons. And then the mask is actually in the theater and somebody puts it on and gets scratched. I mean, it's got this weird sort of meta thing that I hadn't really seen before. I mean, I remember loving the crap out of this movie when it originally came out, and I still really enjoy it. It doesn't have much of a plot past what I just described. I mean, it really,
0: this is... You can't make much sense out of what's actually happening. All the characters are extremely cartoonish. uh, Terribly dubbed. Oh yeah, a poor the the this is a, a an Italian horror movie made for the American market. Yeah, very cool. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, and no it other has reason, you know, the soundtrack is like Billy Idol, except Motley Crue. Oh yeah. Rick great soundtrack.
0: Saxon. Great, great eighties <laughs> metal soundtrack. I mean, it's uh, and then this go you know, creepy. Typical uh, Italian electronica score going in the background as well. Some really great imagery, some really great kills. If you if you are a fan of, of Italian horror, you probably already know this one, with <laughs> the odds of this yeah. having slipped past you. Um, I think in the zombie fixation of, of the past few years, and those ones being canonized, and people looking more uh things like Suspiria, and Phenomena, which has now had this like really big resurgence, yeah, you know, which is kind of a weird one too. That's suddenly like the one people go, "Oh, that was one of the great ones." You're like really weird. Um, <laughs> well, This has kind of been a bit, a bit overshadowed, uh, but this is a really, really solid re-release. And uh, uh, you know, yeah. uh, if you don't have either of these, I think they're and you like Italian horror, then this is an absolutely you know stellar opportunity to pick them up in a good in a good edition yeah and only say
1: demons 2 first screen appearance of Asia Argento and also maybe the only time she doesn't take her clothes off because she's mm. 10 years old here um, and borderline though with yeah. her dad you know <laughs>
0: No, uh, that is a uh, that is a strange relationship that I don't feel we need to go into. No, nope. and then uh, this one apparently
1: they decided, oh, no more heavy metal. Instead, we're going to do new wave. So it's all Gene Loves Jezebel and Fields of the Nephilim and Lovin' Rockets and Peter Murphy and Dead Can Dance. Well, and,
0: and this is late enough that it's not even new wave. I mean, you really are heading into into actual European goth at this point. Yeah. Uh, you know, particularly with with the Neph's. Uh, you know, Pete Murphy. You know. Uh, uh, you know, and the cult at that point, where they'd actually stopped being goth and were now just becoming like, you know, weird Native American rock, which was one of the weirdest things possible for a bunch of short blokes from Leeds.
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> I actually think the soundtrack serves it better in the second one than it does in the first yeah. one. But anyway, that's partially because of my own preferences for music. But anyway, I thoroughly recommend both these films for horror fans. If you're one of those people who've seen a few Italian films and went. They're pretty, but they're too slow for me. This won't, These are not slow. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Right from the get-go, it gets pretty fucking gory and doesn't let up. All right, well, let's move on to something more recent, not a re-release, and that is SOB Summer of Blood. Blood. <laughs> as far as I can tell, this is uh, if um, Larry David and Dan Harmon had a baby, and it grew up to be about the age that Dan Harmon is, and he becomes a vampire. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much the plot of this movie. Uh, yeah. A complete misanthrope uh, <laughs> who bas- who is somewhere in the midway of the autistic scale, I suspect, uh, gets bitten by a vampire and doesn't turn into a gothy vampire. He's pretty much his own personality. He's he's a fat asshole. He's a fat asshole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and whether or not you like this movie is going to f- depend on how much you like that kind of humor of like watching this guy who's just clueless and pisses off and everyone around him and then is mystified that they're pissed off, you know, at becoming a vampire. If you think that kind of thing is funny, then you might find this really funny. I, I thought this was kind of a riot. I myself. I love this.
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm going to pronounce your name wrong because I, I do not speak Turkish particularly well. Honor uh, uh who is the writer, director, and star of this, has the balls to make himself really a quite incredibly unpleasant character. And not in a kind of like, I'm malicious evil. He's just like such a douchebag. You just yeah. want to punch him. He you know, completely fails in his relationships. He kind of passes as a hipster uh amongst other hipsters but purely because they mistake him being just lazy and shiftless and schlubby for him being alternative right so the, and there's actually a couple of beautiful moments there where they where he runs into a couple of you know, obvious hipsters and they're just like one of us and it's like no he's just a scumbag <laughs> um, and you know the first half hour is really his misadventures in dating right and then he gets bitten by a vampire And he develops the vampire sensuality, but he's still this complete prick. Yeah, well, it's sort of like he has the ability
1: of hypnotism, more or less. And anyone, like, you know, that's the one more romantic aspect of vampires that carries over here, is that you hypnotize people.
0: And then you go, well, if you know, that hypnosis is not actually that romantic, as is shown by the fact that this guy's a dick who just goes on terrible Tinder dates and then just, you know just bites the woman and goes oh now you're under my power and you must sleep with me yeah and there's you know this great line at one point he just goes it's amazing what you can do with a five and a half inch penis <laughs> and it's like that That I, I didn't think this was so much you know Larry David-esque I you know this feels like a Portlandia sketch in right. a lot of ways it's it does just, you know just that kind of like very laid back uh, you know it's a really tight smart little script uh that focuses on on just complete dick but you kind of like really want to see how dickish he can be yeah yeah and you
1: never really root for him no. to get better i mean it's not like a lot of films where you start feeling bad for him you don't really because he was a prick as a human he did a prick as a vampire which is really yeah. really kind of fun I way mean, to do it even though he does go through a certainly has a uh you know ultimately it is about some degree of redemption for this character. Um, It's such a half-assed, wishy-washy sort of redemption. Yeah. It's the exact kind of redemption he might go through, where he went from still a prick, but at least a prick who knows how to not infuriate absolutely everyone around him anymore. Um, There's a hysterical conversation here with him, with all his succubi lying around, where they're just kind of talking. (laughs) And they, you know, they'll ask him, they're not completely under his power you know, per se, but they're questioning whether or not him having like group sex with them all is sexist or not.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a little bit misogynistic. It's like, it's like oh, let's just do it anyway. It's like yeah, yeah. I I was not expecting anything from this. I hadn't heard anything about it. Uh it is very low key but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> Almost much to my my uh, my disappointment in myself because it is about a really horrible character but it, you know, you it never lets up it never goes no he's actually okay it's like no god he's the kind of person who would he wouldn't make enemies he'd just alienate all his friends by being such a lazy bastard.
1: Right. That very, very true. Uh and I do recommend this. Like I said, if you're you're a fan of that type of humor, I think you might actually like it. I know some people hated it. Yeah. Because if you're somebody you can't you don't like movies where the protagonist is thoroughly unlikable, generally speaking,
0: this is not the movie for you. <laughs> speaking of, of movies where all the protagonists are quite unlikable.
1: Yes. Ugh.
0: The Damned. Ugh. But you know
1: I like IFC Midnight. Let me yeah. just say that. They like you never know what you're gonna get. And not everything is a winner. I mean, certainly, in fact, if there was any company that I wish I could go work as the guy who went to like festivals and picked out films for them, it'd probably be them. Because they'll take chances on really weird stuff. Uh, they don't, it seems like there's nobody at a second level deciding whether or not something's good enough yeah. for them or not. You well, know they what I they mean? picked
0: up Proxy, which, which, which I loved. Right. Blood Glacier, which is one of my favorite monster movies of the past couple of years. Uh, you know, But they also picked this up, which at one point went by the much better title of Gallows Hill, Yeah, uh, which would be the best thing about it.
1: The Damned is about the most generic title you could come up with uh, for one of these type or for any movie, or or band. Don't call yourself The Damned, because there already was one. Yep. Don't it's, name your book that, don't name your car that, don't name your pet it's taken. that. <laughs> it's It's been done. The idea uh, here much is like this film. Peter Fascinelli, who is not as fascinating as his last name would seem to lead you to believe. Kind of um,
0: a, a, a dollar store Vigo uh, Mortensen, really. Yeah, like yeah.
1: even cheaper than that, he's like the... the When you go on Amazon and they're selling some movies for one cent, you're like, what are you doing? Why would you sell it for one cent? I don't understand. He's one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. He's still somebody's buying him, but it ain't me. Uh, He and his fiance and a dude go to Bogota,
0: Colombia. Bogota. 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 (laughs) Nor Abe Bogota. Bogota.
1: (laughs) There's some song with Bogota in it. I'm forgetting what it is now. Something about, oh, I stuck in a Bogota with with, uh, Abe Bogota or something like that. Or Trisha Toyota, that's it. You. It's a Dickies song, come on. Talk about... Get with it. Film. That happened 20 years ago. Anyway, this was shot in (laughs) Columbia. Uh, Yes, they're going down there because his daughter is... Who is annoying. Is very annoying, and she's been,
0: like, she's rebellious.
1: And uh, annoying. and they grab and her, so is her boyfriend. and they're going home, and the car gets in a car crash, and like, because actually, they're annoying
0: and stupid and won't listen to directions,
1: in kind of a cool looking crash though, with like oh, yeah. f- flooding, like massive flooding coming, to, you know, sending their car flying. But uh, they get out, they find a, a big cool looking house nearby that's run by this really old, can't speak English dude. He's like, "No, you can't come in here." It's like, "Come on, these people are injured. You got to let us in." He's like, "Fine," you know, but in another language. Uh, and he's like, okay, whatever you guys do, just stay in this room. Please don't leave this room. And he wanders off to do, I can't remember what, do something. And of course they immediately, the first thing they do is wander off in this big house. And they find in the basement, this little girl who has been, who is, you know, she's in ragtag clothes. She's been locked up, uh, in the cellar. There's, like, cockroaches everywhere, and they're like, oh, my God, this is horrible. And then, you know, they let her out, and the guy's like, oh, you dumbasses, we're all dead. We're doomed. Because she is
0: the damned. She is possessed by a witch. Yes. And this makes her the only thing with any personality or any really interesting defining character traits uh, at all. This is technically a pretty well-made film. Like you know, they they find this great location. It's shot well. There's some great action sequences. Every single character in this is boring and annoying. Yeah, this is one of the, I, whether it was just a matter of the director just kind of got them all to play it low key, apart from odd moments where they're really ridiculously over over dramatic, or they're just not that good, or they just didn't gel. Yeah, you know, I, I you need to be able to care about the characters and particularly don't. in a sealed environment and you just don't give a well, shit well i mean the worst is like all right so creepy
1: little girl right like i like creepy children movies much as the next horror buff but she is killed really early on and the premise from there on is like anybody who kills somebody who's possessed by the witch ha- there's nothing you can do you're going to get possessed by the witch so it turns into a we've got to capture and re-put someone back in this cellar You cannot let them... You cannot kill them because then it'll get away again inside you. And, you know, the stuff that comes with like, but no, that's my daughter. No, that's my friend. No, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see how this is going to go. The problem is that nobody's good enough of an actor to tell the difference between when they're possessed and when they're not
0: because they're an asshole all the time. Yeah, it actually takes (laughs) the odd moments of CG uh, and not badly... Again, technically, this is a really well-made film. Yeah. so much good for it. But every single acting decision I'm looking at and just going, I really wish this was somebody somebody be better i think if you want a kind of a, a, a gothic uh creepy uh vaguely supernatural drama you know, which is actually character driven and actually has a decent cast and you want it to come from ifc i i'd go and pick up haunters instead uh oh, which is terrific. same same label much better film this is really across the board disappointing yep couldn't agree with you more um i mean i'll
1: ifc like i said you never know what you're gonna get this yeah, one, I'm, we're I'm a big advocate which-
0: for them as a label, and this is just not this is not one of the ones that I I, I can I could honestly say people should buy.
1: Now talk about the, the movies where you don't know what you're going to get. Uh, Ginger clown, yep. uh, this is yeah. Um, I will say this: I haven't seen puppets this gross and cool since Killer Clowns from
0: Outer Space. That was what I was thinking. Yeah, that was the film. that Like if if you want a reference point for this film, because there aren't many Killer Clowns from Outer Space possibly a little bit of meet the feebles
1: yes and i can see why you might look at the box of this and go wait what tim curry plays the evil clown lance hendrickson is a monster michael winslow is a monster brad dorf and sean young are monsters holy shit how did they get all these people together i gotta see this fucking film and on you know when someone was pitching this i'm sure it was like damn, this sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a cult classic. The problem is the only thing that works at all in this movie is the idea of these giant evil puppets like causing trouble because the script is so incredibly immature. It's like a three-year-old wrote it. Yeah. I mean, I know they're going for horror comedy. Hey, everyone, play it as broad as you possibly can. But none of the jokes work. The acting is so broad as to feel like you're watching you know, dinner theater in Iowa. (laughs) Sorry, Iowa. Um, The idea being is that there's this nerdy guy uh, named Sam, played by Ashley Lloyd, who is more or less threatened by the local frat boys, or not even frat boys, but like sports jocks at his high school, into sneaking into an old amusement park nearby to show his courage so he can get a kiss from the, the hot, cheerleader girl jenny who's the only sympathetic one out of any of them she's like oh you guys are a bunch of dicks and follows them in there and then it's their adventures wandering randomly around this admittedly cool looking uh abandoned amusement park i mean they did a great job with set design and, and costumes and everything else it's just who gives
0: a fuck when the script is this awful i i'm a little bit more sympathetic towards this um this reminds me of uh Back in the you know, where when after college, when a bunch of friends and mine, we try and find like a bad film uh, every week, and we just get a big pizza and some beer and just sit around and watch it and just you know let it wash over us. Which was in fact the first time I saw Demons was was in that setting. Right. This kind of like it's it's that this is a really dumb pizza and beer movie. It's not even that it's undemanding. It's you know kind of just you know kind of silly and low key and low budget. Desperately wants to be something like Killer class Matterspace. Isn't in the same stratosphere, but. It's kind of entertaining. It really feels like a bunch of people who ran who run a haunted house managed to get the money together to make a film, and were yeah. like, "Let's show off what we can do from kind of a haunted house point of view." Um, yeah, the script is, is is dismal, and some of the dialogue is just incoherent. Um, and they didn't need the voice talent that they got by any stretch of the imagination. No. in fact, I wish it were in place it was slightly better lit. Um, because then you could actually see what the hell the costumes looked like. Some of the puppets are really great. The, uh, the spider, the giant spider that's voiced by Sean Young is actually really, really impressive and fun. Um, yeah, I just really, you know, this could have been a lot better. Yes. Um, it is dumb and low key, and, but, you know, I kind of had a soft spot for it because it was, it was cheesy as all hell. And as long as you accept that's how, that's what it is, and take it on its terms, it's like, you know, kind of dopey, kind of daffy. If you see this in a, you know, three dollar, <laughs> see that stack of three dollars as you're exiting Walgreens, uh, yeah, and you know, you're going like, I got twenty. This will pay the rest of it will pay for the pizza. That's a good evening.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. no. I mean, it's for, either yeah, like it's. You want to you're like with your friends, let's watch a bad horror film that's going to make us laugh. this is will surprise you at the type of badness that it is, yeah. and you will in fact laugh, but if you're looking for one that's actually quality oh' this hell ain't no. it
0: hell no, but it's you know it's, it's you know entertaining schlock, yes, very much agreed it's better than most of what Trome has put out for the past twenty years
1: now. As something that is horror, that is a re-release that is not a movie I would have expected to be any good, but boy, is it really is Scream Factory's new release of Dolls from director Stuart Gordon, who of course did the reanimator. But uh Reanimator from Beyond But underneath uh, the underneath the Aegis of Charles Band and his Empire Productions, which certainly has its cult following, and certainly there's some degree of worth there, but they're not usually associated with quality films, generally speaking. Dolls is probably the best movie that ever came out under Empire Pictures. Yeah. I think it's easy to say that.
0: I I think that it's... uh, Stuart Gordon, I actually got to talk to uh, him recently, and he basically wanted to do a fairy tale. He wanted to do a horror fairy tale. And he said, you know, fairy tales have always been horrific. So the basic idea is that there's this... Uh, father who's recently remarried his wife is appalling and they're taking uh, his daughter uh, on vacation they can't stand her she can't stand them and the car breaks down outside of this creepy house where they Mm. where they go they're invited in to spend the night by this lovely old couple and then this couple of punks turn up and punk girls turn up um and this guy in a sports car who thinks he's going to get lucky but doesn't realize the punk girls are just trying to steal his money um And they're basically just in this house overnight where there are lots and lots of dolls. And the owners seem really overly attached to the dolls in this kind of very creepy, unnerving
1: way. Although thoroughly sweet. You've got to love like the owners are like, like the very, very old uh, Guy Rolfe and Hillary Mason, who are both like old school. um... No, I'm sorry. That's not right. Those are the is that right? Yes, Guy yeah. Rolfe and Hillary Mason, who are both very old school Hollywood actors, uh, Guy Ralph used to play villains a lot of the time. And here he's like, he's like a Neil Gaiman character in that he's not necessarily a villain, although he can do villainous acts, but sort of a decider of the other world. Yeah, You know, like who is worthy of continuing on and who is not in his weird little Ages of turning people into dolls.
0: (laughs) It's very morally ambiguous in in that way, but this is part of this range of of tiny creature movies that uh, Charles Band did. He started making his money on ghoulies and Ghoulies 2, and he was like, people like small things. So you have, you know, you've got this, you've got... Puppet uh, Master. Puppet Master, uh, Dollman, the Deadly Toys franchise as well, a Dangerous Toys franchise as well. You've got all these things. This is by far the best of them, because it's Stuart Gordon, a, a man who is... You know, it it doesn't actually come from a horror background. He actually comes from a a formal theatrical background. He actually, his first, he he was the first person to direct a production of Sexual Perversity in in Chicago. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, He's really good friends with, he's done several David Mamet adaptations. I did not realize Uh, that. um, But he definitely. But he understands horror and he understands, and and he, you know, he's also, uh, my my favourite fact about Stuart Gordon. Where he made his real money, where is that? Uh, selling the rights to a script called Teeny Weenies, uh, which then became uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. No kidding, Charles. Uh, yeah, Stuart Gordon. Uh, that's that's. It was him, Brian Ye- uh, Brian Yuzna, and that's where they made their real. Where Yuzna
1: was the effects guy.
0: Yeah, and they yeah. made their. Uh, and he actually developed films at Disney. He was a Disney guy for for a good few years.
1: And The thing about this one is, as, as much as it sounds as silly as any of those other Charles Band Tiny Thing productions, this one has a really likable uh relationship between the two protagonists which is the little girl and because uh, she's there with her step her father and stepmother who, who is just... based in Crowell Deville. yeah they're horrible <laughs> horrible people and she befriends the one guy who picked up the two punk girls because he's still a child at heart he's like a good guy sadly died young I looked that up on oh, Wikipedia no. died of a heart attack
0: no. uh, when he was like in his 50s he looks like uh, kind of a, a slightly slubbier Sean Astin
1: yeah yeah, yeah. um they're very likable. Their relationship is understandable, um, and the effects are good and genuinely creepy. There are some moments in here that are like kind of send a shiver down your spine. Yeah,
0: there is there is a moment uh, with eyes. Yes, that is actually referenced in the original poster art. When yes. you see it, it's legitimately creepy. Yes, that is a it's a disturbing. That's moment. Precisely what I was thinking. Yeah, of. and there's a, the, the denouement is. I, I think one of the most underrated underrated effect sequences in eighties uh, American horror. Yes, that payoff is like it will. You yeah, know, this kind of gets under your skin, and it really is a kind of grim style fairy tale. This is you know, the, a morality tale about you know, don't be horrible to people. Or to to innocent things because they will come and get you because they may not be that innocent after all <laughs> right this is yeah you know, this They're is innocent ag- to a point yeah and yet again another life. splendid uh, re-release by uh, by uh, scream Factory yeah it
1: comes with a uh, 38 minute toys of terror the making of dolls another excellent Scream Factory making of uh, piece. Filmed a piece a film to sport storyboard comparison uh, audio commentary by Stuart Gordon and the writer Ed Maha, an audio commentary by several of the cast members so that's actually pretty cool. I mean, you can't believe a movie like a little movie like Dolls gets this much, you know, pristine treatment. But that's what Scream and Shout Factory does. Yeah. They they go, no release is too small.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, you know, this is one of these ones I think people know Stuart Gordon's work well enough. I think they'll really appreciate you know, why this stood out from the pack at the time.
1: Agreed. Uh, continuing with our theme of horror, let's take a look at a movie that was maybe a little hastily uh declared to be out of the conjuring and Oculus and and you know, all those Blumhouse films that were good, better than all of them. You know, that was what was plastered on the cover from yeah. some horror magazine. I'm like, I see where you're going with the comparison, but so, no. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's a intro the House at the end of time. It's an interesting Venezuelan uh horror suspense movie. Uh it premiered at the Venezuelan Film Festival. Um to apparently great acclaim mm-hmm. uh and I can see like popping up in a in a small film festival, maybe it's not even a small film festival do oh, I know I've never been to Venezuela, but um that it was you know. That they, people loved it. It was very well received in, in Venezuela. It set box office records for films, even. Um, well, it sold a whole 45,000 tickets in Venezuela four weeks. Venezuela
0: not a big country. It's not a wealthy country, I <laughs> but think, is the, is the takeaway.
1: This is actually... It's one of those films that's not necessarily what it looks like on the outside, much like the, you know oculus or something like that probably closer in comparison to oculus than anything else but the idea is it starts in the 80s with this uh woman dulce lives uh in a house with her her two sons uh leopoldo and rodrigo and her husband juan and she starts they it's clear something's fucked up in this house she's experiencing strange phenomena, seeing people old people walk around the house and it Flips back and forth in time from that to uh, the future, where we find out that she killed her uh, husband, and one of her sons has just
0: disappeared—like nobody knows what happened to him at all—and something bad has happened to the other the other kid because they don't mention for yeah. a long time they don't mention what happened to
1: to the second. It's not until midway through the film we actually find out the answer to that, but um, she's denied it the whole time. I didn't do it. I don't know who did it, but it wasn't me and we we see her as an old woman being put basically as house arrest in the same house and starting to experiencing supernatural phenomenon as well and the setup is while like i I guess it's hard for me to say w- what was written first this or oculus, I yeah. suspect probably this, but it is going to ring familiar in some ways to the plot the the story structure there, the way it flips back and forth, the way in many ways it is a time travel horror film. Um, probably a little more on the nose with that than Oculus is. Yeah, I just think, if anything, the suspense is not as big as they think it is, and the surprises aren't as surprising as they think they are. I,
0: I think it's undercut a little bit by the fact that the sequences with the kids uh, basically... Uh... It's like somebody dropped some sequences from bad news bears uh, into <laughs> yeah. a a, a spanish language gothic horror true um but the Spanish language gothic horror bit's actually are very effective and m- mainly that's carried by the fact that um uh Rudy Rodriguez as uh, Dolce and uh Gonzalo Cabrera as her uh, husband you know you get this real sense of a marriage that's falling apart uh and then you know in the current in the current day she's kind of dealing with the fallout. Or their emotional fallout of that, and most of this is in flashback. But you know, they kind of add this, this grittiness, this this kind of adult tone to it. That of like, you know, they, they've got enough going on with the fact they they're pretty much on the verge of divorce. You know, they they've got tensions over their kids, uh, and then weird stuff keeps happening around the house. And that I think that worked well. I, I almost wished there was less of the stuff with the kids. Uh, you could edit out some big swathes of that. Yes. Particularly, uh, which would also mean getting rid of some stuff at the end that, uh, the end, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm okay with, I'm not super down with, it's... and there's definitely a bit that could have been complete. There is a, there is a character, and you'll know when you see it, uh, there is a character and a whole subplot that could easily have been lopped off. Agreed. And it the film would have been better for it well they're trying
1: to give it these characters the children specifically more depth and to give the film a heart and i think that it just ends up being distracting from the stuff that's supposed to be scary especially considering that when the whole thing is taken in context it's not actually a terribly scary movie yeah you know it's like when you know everything that happened you're like oh well that wasn't actually like, it was just a matter of misunderstanding the scenario. Yeah. <laughs> um, It's an interesting script. Certainly was challenging to write, I'm sure. Yeah. And I think, generally speaking, there are good performances in here, and there are some real, like you said, the gothic-y horror sequences, like, initially are indeed kind of freaky. But there's something to be said for when you, like, later go back and you take away all the power from anything that was scary earlier. You just remove all the power from it, and then in retrospect, you're like,
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. It's a lesser contribution to kind of the the Spanish language Gothic movement, Uh, but it's you know it's still it's still got some some interesting stuff. You know, it's not a a first round buy if you're trying to uh, yeah. No, you, you wouldn't stick this right next to The Orphanage or Devil's Backbone. Like, no, it that way.
1: but it's one of those, like, it'll be on Netflix eventually is what I'm thinking. Yeah, or and I think, think well worth the worth, you know, 90 minutes of your time then. Well, as long as we're uh, starting off with all the horror, I say we continue the trend here and go with Tammy. All yours, buddy. <laughs>
0: all yours. What, you
1: didn't want to see Tammy? No. You know, as Melissa McCarthy starring f- films go, this is not the worst of them. And I realized <laughs> <laughs> I realized that's faint praise, and I know everybody loves bridesmaids, everybody loves bridesmaids. I don't love bridesmaids. I'm sorry for that. I didn't think it was funny. I thought it was puerile, and just in, I thought it was taking any given like gross out joke movie that's poorly written and just substituting woman acting horribly for men acting horribly. It didn't work for me. I'm that guy, yeah, sorry. I thought Melissa McCarthy was indeed one of the few saving graces of that film, but that being said, I'm not sure that was the stepping stone to a whole series of she's the main star films. Um, probably the best thing I've seen her do is the one with Sandra Bullock, uh, The Heat, which was surprisingly entertaining. I yeah. uh, did not expect to like that at all. I was like, this is not half bad. The same can't really said be for, for Tammy, which wants to have it all and, and definitely is vying for a female audience. I mean, come on, it stars Susan Sarandon. And, Allison Janney and Tony Collette, Sandra O,
0: oh, Kathy Bates. What audience are they aiming for? Uh, this does seem to be um, gathered from some of the, the finer uh, female character actors on TV from the past few years I mean, right this is, a, this is a solid solid cast do they do anything with it or or should we just you know just jam our head into a door and smash it on our heads for half an hour the thing
1: t- is eventually it finds itself in a place that's not too bad it's just getting to there that is such a struggle uh Melissa McCarthy plays the titular character Tammy who is just a she's just a redneck just white trash. Better than, you know, certainly well meaning white trash, but white trash nonetheless. She's really kind of stupid. Um, and she just she works at a fast food restaurant. Um, she can't keep a job even there. She gets fired like when we see her first showing up for work because she always shows up late. Um, you know, she hits a, ca- a deer on her way to the job. I mean, she's she, life shits on her all the time, but it's partially because she's just not trying real hard either she gets home to find out that her husband greg is cheating on her with their neighbor um she goes home tell her mom who lives like two houses down or something uh that she's gonna leave she's just gonna take her grandmother's car and and leave fuck it i'm gonna hit the road because this is not working grandmother played by susan sarandon which you're like oh hold on maybe this won't be as horrible as i thought it was (laughs) uh Susan Sarandon's character, Pearl, says, "Okay, you can take my car, but I'm coming with you. So it turns into this really irritating road trip (laughs) film as these two
0: basically rednecks. The worst pitch, worst elevator pitch ever. Imagine a really irritating road movie.
1: (laughs) Just a lot of really fall flat on its face jokes as these two who don't really get along slowly start getting along. And they're both meeting guys on the road that maybe there'll be a love connection, maybe there won't. And honestly, none of it works at all until the third act when they end up hanging out with a bunch of lesbians. I don't know what to tell you other than that. Like, there's suddenly it turns into this really kind of charming liberal comedy that is like, oh, well, why wasn't the rest of the movie like this? (laughs) Because the last third has got some genuinely funny bits and it's got some genuinely heartwarming bits in it. And then, but... I can't imagine most people would sit through the first two thirds of this movie to get there. I don't know. Um, I, I think that I'm not alone in saying this was wildly uneven. I think most of the, the, the press out there was pretty much right on the same page. You've also got Dan Aykroyd. Gary Cole has a very good role. A very nice role in here is Pearl's love interest. Aww. You know? Yeah. Why don't you come on Saturday? Oh, <laughs> It'll take that long. Uh, Mark Duplass has a nice role in here. I mean, there's some good people in this movie. It's just another Melissa McCarthy vehicle that feels only half-baked and not completely thought out. Yeah, Like, shout out a first draft script, and everyone's like, we got to put this out because we don't know how much longer people are going to
0: keep paying to see Melissa McCarthy movies. So <laughs> I'm just, It sounds like this is going kind of to decrease the length of time people will want to watch Melissa McCarthy movies. I, I suspect that's true as well and you know this comes with an
1: extended cut because it, the world cried out for that. Yeah it's a 101 minute cut instead of the 97 minute theatrical cut. Ugh. Uh, there's something called Tammy's Road Trip Checklist for five minutes. Uh, five minutes of deleted scenes.
0: Six so minutes they could of, have made this 106 minutes.
1: Yeah. Oh, if you're going to do that, just go all in. Yeah, Right, just fuck it. Throw everything in there. Six minutes of alternate takes, three minutes of gag reel. Uh, okay, it's forgettable. What can I tell you? Maybe horror is a strong way of describing this, but uh, near horrible oh. would be accurate. <laughs> anyway, let's... Uh, better, enough said let's move on to something that I think actually it really is worth seeing which is Mood Indigo now you saw this more recently than I did even though I saw this in the theater at a festival a while back yeah. uh, and really enjoyed it despite feeling that of Michelle Gondry's films this isn't one of the ones that people are going to go to as his greatest film but it has lots of moments in there that are right up there with some of his great moments <sighs> so I guess you're not
0: feeling the same <sighs> strength like um, as I am yeah. I'm very very hit and miss on Gondry, and I feel that this is even deeper down the kind of... He likes to take twee and add a dose of poison at the end. <laughs> um, and I think he balanced that perfectly um, in Eternal Sunshine. And yeah. this is much further down the path he went with Science of Sleep. It's basically Agreed. this kind of... In, independently wealthy guy in Paris who lives in a, a twee and chirpy apartment uh, <laughs> that is very Gondryesque. Everything about this is so gondriesque Like, it's almost like somebody taking the piss out of a, a Michel Gondry movie. Um, <laughs> um, a, and uh, he, you know, he, one day he uh, he bump, uh, bumps into this uh, uh, woman called, uh, played by Aud- uh, Audrey Tattoo. Which is enough to sell me on it, right there. Yeah. Who? Well, again, I'm I've never never been super sold on her. Uh, I know, I know. I'm old and bitter. Um, You should just. And they have a twee relationship, and everything's twee, (laughs) and they float around on cloud cars and go into holes. And he's got a rabbit. He's got got a little mouse that runs around his house. And then things start to go wrong, and everything decays, and it gets sad. And by this point, I, I was so emotionally checked out from this film, that even when you have this this third act, which is, I think this thing, you have to be totally on board with Gondry at his cutest and most twee, and then True. he comes in at the end and goes, aha, no, there's an important message about how people are basically spoiled and rotten and then bad things are going to happen to them. And I'm like, well, I didn't like them because they were so spoiled and rotten. And then your payoff is the bad things that happen to them. And I'm not even like, well, you know, th- there's not, not even the, the pleasure of Schadenfreude about <laughs> what happens to them. They're just irksome and and you know that was my gut response it's like I really did not like the world I didn't like the characters and I didn't even feel like that kind of you know sense of, of, of oh well at least there's a big moral here it's just like he sets up these these annoying hipster characters and then pff, the horrible stuff happens and I'm like well oh, I don't care See, I really don't care.
1: I where I agree with you that there is not much in the way of an emotional touchdown for this film, it's not even the type of film I would say that you watch it for its story, uh, per se. Um, it's the it is that tweeism as you described, that I personally really appreciate when it's done well. I think nobody does it as well as Gondry does, and this is kind of a showroom of some of his most impressive tweetum in some while. I mean, they're basically living in a parallel universe with different rules of physics that the Epcot center in that world predicted the future was going to look like. Yeah. (laughs) If you get me, you know, it's like, this does not, it sets up this weird world that they live in where all the strange stuff that happens all the time is completely normal. Um, Like that's just how, that's what happens. That's how things work and i really appreciated his world building on there i thought it was really fascinating and its worst is that it does expect you to become be emotionally involved with these characters so that when dark stuff happens you care and i found myself more going can we get more to back to the whole colorful crazy weirdness cuz i was thought that was so inventive so just titillating to watch that i was having a great time despite the fact that there's not a lot of soul yeah outside of that but i I think that that stuff is strong enough and funny enough that I did thoroughly enjoy it
0: regardless. I, I think it's interesting that, you know, he he, he put together a, a cut of this for Cannes. And even amongst his supporters, there was they were so ambivalent about it. He <laughs> went away and went, yeah, no, really, I need to cut half an hour out of this film. Right. Um, this release uh, uh, from our friends at Draft House Films puts that half hour back. Uh, does the world need that? I think I think if you liked it initially, I think and and you could get past the ways it tests your patience. I think you'll probably like that extra half hour. Uh, this tests my patience in all the wrong ways. I really, um, I you know, it's going to take a lot to convince me that uh, at this point that um, Eternal Sunshine wasn't an aberration for him, wasn't just like a a, a lucky coincidence that it, that it's so good. This really is just. I, mm, I mean, oh. the
1: best stuff he ever did is Eternal Sunshine by by, you know, so far, so many miles that you can't even see it in the distance. And uh, his music video collection, which is still yes. exceptional if yeah. you ever get a chance to check those out. But this also, like you said, it comes with the director's cut and the uh, extended cut of the film, behind-the-scenes featurette, uh, various featurettes on set creation, costumes, from the, it was based on a book, so there's a book to a film, deleted scenes, it has a 36-page booklet, at, you know, a digital download. O- overall, if you like this movie, they make it a pretty solid, appealing package.
0: Yeah, but for me, this is the... Uh... The cinematic equivalent of somebody is somebody saying, look how wacky I am. I'm wearing mismatched different colored socks. <laughs> I, I just, no, no,
1: sorry. All right. All right, Richard. I'll bring this back down to earth for you. Yay! Uh, I, we're going to talk about Joe Swanberg's Happy Christmas. Yay! Which I get the feeling you probably liked a lot more than I,
0: I did. I did. This is uh, after um, Drinking Buddies, which I adore. Um, I, I, I love Drinking Buddies as well, and, and Twenty Four Exposures, which was him being as radically experimental with structure as I, I mean, he's ever been. Didn't see it. Uh, this is a return to classic indie relationship, uh, heavily improvised uh, Swanberg. uh This is very much something like, like something like uh, Nights and Weekends, and this is Joe. You know, he's made films very much about where he is in his life, and this is clearly about Joe as a guy who is you know got a little bit of success as a, a filmmaker not huge but you know he's doing okay he now does this for a living uh is a father you know his son his infant son appears as the character's son in this you know he lives in chicago like the character i mean he's basically playing himself with melanie linsky as a fictionalized version of his wife um, and uh, his sister comes to stay with them for a while uh, uh, played by anna kendrick yeah uh, who basically is kind of you know burning out a little bit after a, a, her last relationship went belly up. Yeah. And she's kind she, of a wild child not she, like punk wild child but, just, but she shouldn't be anymore. This is the whole thing. Yeah. Like she really should be past this. Yeah. And there's a start of, a website and a podcast or grow up. Yeah, one of the two. <laughs> um, and you know it's very much kind of scenes and incidents which is what I really like when Swanberg does this kind of stuff. Uh, I could find. Uh, I know a lot of people find his work very grating. I think Kendrick. I think he brings out the best in best in her. Uh, I think Linsky, again. You know this in, this improvised environment. I think it's is great for her.
1: Poor Linsky. She like you know. You look back at like Kate Winslet and her both getting their debut film. Yeah. <laughs> with Peter Jackson. Hey, she
0: made, <laughs> She's probably still pulling in some pretty good money off that. Uh, uh two and a half. Uh, those two and a half men residuals from uh, the the constant repeats. Oh, was she on Two and a Half Men? Yeah, she was the uh, the crazy love interest in uh, the first like three or four seasons. Yeah, I don't yeah. watch that show. It was a terrible show, but she was in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, and I, you know, at this point, you either like Swanberg or you don't. I think this is an evolution for him. Uh, you know, purely because you know this is about him talking about being a little bit more mature. You know, it's not just about well, who you're going to sleep with. This is a, this is the first time he's really dealt with family relationship stuff in his in his films, rather than just kind of. Sexual and and, and uh, platonic relationships. This is him going, yo. Well, you know, what have you got to deal with the fact that your sister is a complete <laughs> is a complete flake and almost sets the place on fire. <laughs> you know, it, it, very low key. Uh, I don't think anybody does this quite as well. I think he, he makes low key and lo-fi look effortless. That's what I really love about his work. That a lot of people could just go, oh, let's just stick a camera in a corner and, you know, have a boom and, and you're not going to catch anything. You're not going to catch any good, good acting. You're not going to catch the sound. It's not going to be well shot. But I think he, he makes it look so easy. It's like mid nineties Woody Allen. When Woody Allen was like really pushing what he was because people were expecting kind of formal and stylized and this kind of hyper cut version of what he did. And Woody Allen goes, no, I'm going to do these long takes and I'm going to experiment with handheld stuff. But he's such a good director you can that he can get away with that. I think Swanberg does this i uh, you know it's as, it's as not director, as big a scale as yeah it's not a bigger scale as um um drinking buddies, but i you know, i yeah. you know, I really thought this was a, a an excellent uh, addition to his work
1: well drinking buddies was a rare Swanberg film that it actually was pushing towards a wider release. Yeah. It was certainly going for a more commercial feel to it. It's more of a traditional romantic comedy in a lot of ways, but with more naturalistic Joe Swanberg twists to it. And it actually felt like it had more of a plot than a lot of his other films do. I think, like, he evolved out of the, the mumblecore movement, and I think now his films are, like, sort of where Lars von Trier was with Dogville, with Dogma 95, where it's no longer sticking by the rules of that movement, but you can see how all the strings are still attached. There's still like the resin of it all over it. Because yeah. <laughs> this is, as a writer, a film where nothing really happens. It's about some people who are mildly interesting people that are incredibly well-performed and v- made very likable by the actors playing the roles. Although I still think Swanberg has some a little ways to go himself as an actor, especially when he's up against Kendrick and Linsky, what have you. And even Lena Dunham in a small appearance in here, who's kind of funny.
0: Uh, Le- them who I here I think embraces the fact that you know her character is supposed to be quite awful. Yeah, she it's, just it walks goes around back around. to that girls' question of whether actually you know her character in Girls is actually the villain of the show rather than the protagonist. She and just walks around looking at little girls' vaginas the whole movie. Yeah, she she, <laughs> she she really she she plays this the the character who you know it, it initially seems like oh she's you know free spirited, but then she she just doesn't really get her head around that there are consequences. Yes. And she's kind of the the little devil in Anna, Anna Kendrick's ear for a lot of the, a lot of it. No, I, I like this a lot. I mean, again, this is not for a mass audience, but no. you know, I you know, I think, you know, it's it's a really you know, really interesting to see Joe Swanberg mature. Um, and I always want to see what he's going to do next because it's going to be complete, something completely different to this. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's going to be like, you know, well, Swanberg a, shoots in a different direction.
1: It's very, it's been kind of crazy watching him explore being this, indie director that actors want to work with who still gets to do whatever the hell he feels like doing i can't say i'm the world's biggest fan of his his style of writing still i like to have i, I feel like he i feel like he knows how to write characters he doesn't know how to write a story
0: yeah like he just never figured it out but i, I think <laughs> and, he really feels that you know I, I think it's a philosophical thing for him that story comes from character yeah and you let the characters drive that and i think that you know the the end of this is, is final proof of that that it's it's, a, it's not about a thing happening. It's about how people respond. There's this moment, which I thought was beautiful. It's all tiny and beautifully observed. And I, I like the fact that he doesn't feel like you've got to put a script in there. Yeah, you know, it, it feels much more naturalistic. And See, I you know, and I really like that.
1: That's where we differ, I guess, ultimately. Because at the end, yeah. I was
0: like, oh, it's, seriously? It's, it's, yeah, this is purely about the philosophy <laughs> of, of of narrative. And I, 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 I just like what Joe's doing at the moment. Uh, now, switching over
1: to something a little bit more uh, big and well-known, but still having lots of problems with story. Well, like I said, not that I just thought that had problems with story, not Richard, but we are going to talk about the new Clint Eastwood film, Jersey Boys, which I got to say, Clint Eastwood, I know you're getting old, but What happened to you lately? You used to be the guy that every movie you put out, you could count on at least being something you're going to talk about for a while after. Lately, his films have been ones I can't remember that I saw. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, like a week later. I'm like, Oh yeah, I did see that. I guess. Shit. What was that about? Um, (laughs) Jersey boys is an adaptation of an extremely popular musical, Tony award-winning musical, the same name. That's about the musical group, the four seasons. And, of course, the Four Seasons were one of the, you know, I mean, let's face it, like the defining boy band, doo-wop band of their era in the 1950s. Frankie Valley, the uh-huh. lead of it. And it's really about Frankie Valli. Uh And I guess one of the things that, that right from the beginning I thought made this a little awkward was that nobody here is really actors that you recognize at all. And nobody here are actors that I particularly felt were that good in their roles either. Uh, John Lloyd Young who I'm not familiar with... Nope. uh, ...plays Frankie Valley, and I guess he, on the whole, does a... I mean, he's... Clint Eastwood got the actors from the musical to come onto this, and he was indeed the guy who uh, won a Tony Award for Best Leading Actor in a Musical, but as has been seen time and time again, theater acting doesn't necessarily translate to film acting. It's a different type of skill, and I think this movie is like the proof that's in the pudding that that doesn't always work, that transfer, because this movie... I, I guess partially it's like we've seen so many rock biofilms that much more interesting things happen to the people in them that when nothing that interesting is going on with these people, you're at the end, you're like, why did you make a movie out of that? Yeah. You know why? Because it was a really popular musical because the movie, the musical is almost entirely musical numbers, you know, big explosive on stage with like stuff moving around. Wow. Gee whiz, musical numbers. This is a movie, doesn't have as many musical numbers, and consequently, and th- those that they are, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that song. But you're just not that impressed by them. Yeah. It doesn't have that force that propels the stage musical.
0: Yeah, I mean, it always seems like he wasn't prepared to embrace the fact that this is a musical. Yeah. You know, the, there is, I mean, but it, and it's kind of, you know, the, the weird thing is that unlike a lot of, uh, a lot of these other shows like, uh, you know, Buddy Holly the musical, which are about personal tragedies. This is actually a mob drama dressed up as a musical, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of one of those weird things. You know, the truth about you know, about the Four Seasons, you know, that there is this you know mob plot going on in the background. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not altogether sold on this. I like the fact that Clint Eastwood is still going out and making movies. You know that he's still daring to do something. Yeah. Uh, that yeah, you know, which is admirable. Uh, it, and it's interesting. It's kind of making people go back and look at. Stuff earlier in his canon, uh, you know, people are suddenly realising like, oh, White Hunter Black Heart was really, really good, and it does make me wonder whether, you know, we get a little bit of time to let like, something like this settle in. You know, it will improve with time, which is really what happens with Clint Eastwood films. A lot of his stuff, people you know, like all the Spaghetti Western stuff, people were like, eh, it's just Spaghetti Western, who cares? And then 20 years later, they go, oh no, actually this is really, you know, really well made film. Right. And his early directorial stuff, is like, people go, eh, it's okay. And then they go, oh, this is just- Yeah, play
1: Misty with me? Yeah.
0: Terrific. Yeah, and, and you kind I, of, I, I do wonder if like, whether in five years time we'll come back and go actually no this was a little bit better but at the moment no it's it's kind of like it's there and it's not quite sure what it was to be
1: I'm not sure I will feel that way having you know even given gone back and given a chance to like some of his films that I did not like so much in the, the past decade I guess I was like no this is still really mediocre stuff it's, yeah I, I expected something much better from Clint Eastwood I,
0: th- I think it falls between two stools you could either do um, you know the a, a big adaptation of Jersey Boys and go full out Which would be, uh, I think, would require a visually more stylish director than Eastwood. Yeah. Or do the, you know, the four seasons story as a much more conventional, uh, you know, biopic. Uh, And this doesn't seem to either be, you know. It can't decide which one
1: it wants to be to some degree. And it's not the most compelling of situations they find themselves in. I mean, it's mainly it's kind of like the problems that arise from Frankie Valley who just wants to, you know, he's on the path to make it big and he's actually good at it. He's very driven. He's very like, I get the way the business is supposed to work. I get the right things to do. His biggest problem is that he's got too big of a heart, you know, and, and that especially gets in trouble with one of the other members who's a complete, just wants to party and have fun. And he keeps fucking up everything for everyone. And Frankie can't bring himself to say, you need to leave the group because they've been friends since they were kids that's really the drama that's here and such as it is doesn't really propel you through the movie very well no. uh the the funniest thing i thought about this whole movie is that apparently they were really were friends with a young joe pesci like he was one of their buddies and he yeah. there's an actor playing a joe young joe pesci. pesci in this movie you know i was like hey, it's joe pesci Dude. <laughs> Just, do i sound like i sing to you <laughs> yeah i can't picture pesci ever joining the group but yep. there you go Anyway, yeah, another disappointment from Eastwood. I'm sad to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that you made Unforgiven the greatest western of all time.
0: Uh, no, it, it is. Yeah, I just yeah. said so. Said <laughs> that about my darling Clementine? No, I said it
1: was one of the greatest. Oh, all right. Unforgiven then, is on. the greatest. By moving the way, I,
0: I think you still have my copy of No. I give it you back.
1: Yeah, Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Give it you back today. You son of a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> just to throw you. <laughs> all right uh, i'm trying to get this organized in terms of like types of things so and there's so many movies here i'm like it's basically impossible i'm like just charge on charge on scrolling 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 keep that finger scrolling all right well we're gonna move on to documentaries yay (laughs) yes i'm on topic (laughs) (laughs) with uh james cameron's deep sea challenge 3d not a video game nope despite the fact that it kind of sounds like one now james cameron of course we are talking about the director of some of the biggest most successful mega films of all time and
0: also screaming maniac yes well
1: like also known as he's known as one of the most difficult people to work for a lot of people refuse to ever work with him again after a single
0: time you either you either will will never talk about him again like ed harris refuses to talk about the abyss Oh yeah. like just even though it's one of his best performances sure refuses to fucking talk about it but then there are people who go you know what i don't want to work with anybody else ever again yeah i just want to i just want to make movies with james cameron because yes he is a taskmaster and a martinet but the end result is really astounding and this is how you get uh, to Deep Sea Challenge 3D. That basically, when he was a kid, um, and he talks about this in the film here, you know, that, uh, he wa- he heard about the Trieste, which was the, um, American naval submersible, which reached the bottom- the, it went the, the lowest that any manned expedition has ever been in the ocean. And they went down and went, okay, yeah, we can do this now. And they came back up, and then they never went back again. Yeah. And this obviously has driven James Cameron insane, and he's a man who's, who's not just a filmmaker. He does, you know, he does push technological limits. You know, when he did stuff on the on you know, for Titanic, he went, you know what? Um, I'm actually going to shoot stuff on the deck of, Titan- the, deck of the Titanic. We're going to go down, and we're going to do this. And that's what
1: that's where all this really went from a childhood fantasy to, wait, I'm like a
0: billionaire. I can do this. Uh, Like, professionally, as a hobby. (laughs) And and the the same thing that makes him probably, you know, one of the most impossible people to work with as a film director, because he's such a perfectionist, such a technologist, so wants to push everything to the next level. Kind of makes him a natural at actually doing this. Yeah, because A, you've got to be utterly driven, and B, this is a thing where, literally, what he did was he said, I have the money, I am going to build uh, a new experimental uh, submarine that will take me to the deepest point in the ocean. The bottom of the Marianas Trench. And I'm going to do this. Not I'm going to pay for somebody to do this. Not I'm going to find a project and am going to tag along. He did it. He had his team that he's worked with for years that he has assembled to do exactly this kind of project that has resulted in several documentaries. One of them has been screened in IMAX. You know, they go off and they look at the Bismarck or they look at the bottom of the... You know, they look at the Titanic. Yeah. At one Instead, point- he just goes, I'm going to go to the deepest point in the sea and I'm going to get samples. and I'm going to bring them back up. And this is about the progress of designing this new experimental vehicle and going to the deepest point on the Earth. And you are very, very aware... That if anything goes wrong. It's going to be b- it's, a blood mist of James yeah, Cameron. It, and as they point out, oh, if, you know, if you hear something make a cracking noise, you're okay. Because that's just something making a cracking noise. Yeah. If it actually fails, <laughs> you the whole know. thing will implode and you will be pulverized in about two microseconds. Yeah, you, you want not even just know this, anything it, went wrong. You'll just be dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of go, James Cameron's insane. But that he. Does this is really awe inspiring? And he does it for science. I mean, yeah, he's, he's not just doing purely, it like, "Hey, I'm going to take a trip to the bottom of the yeah, ocean." he, he I mean, does, yeah, and he comes back and you know, with you know, with samples and they you know, in the experiment. They're like, "Oh yeah," and on the, while we were down there, we just yeah, they just this code at the end. It's like, on this during this expedition, we discovered six new life forms. <laughs> they're like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, we got samples from the bottom of the ocean and maybe one of the deepest trenches." And you know, and hey, this is. You know, particularly in the 3D version, because I watched the th- the 3D Blu-ray. Oh, uh, nice! It I is... didn't even know you had a 3D TV. Oh, yeah. I have I have access to technologies, um, and it really is amazing. I think few directors really know how to handle 3D quite as well as him, and it's really fascinating. Actually, you know, there's moments that where I'm like, this is just like that shot from The Abyss, and he you know he defined how you do it, how you do this stuff how you how you shoot underwater no, I mean, and I really you know this I really found this fascinating and kind of moving in places uh,
1: see I didn't quite have that same reaction I think that on the outside I think it's good that Cameron's spending all his money on scientific research I mean his research is being used to increase uh, not just sea travel but space travel stuff as well with dealing with supremely high pressures and what have you I mean this is this is a guy using his money for the force of good at the same time there's no question that this is a vanity project. Oh, it is a vanity project. I mean, project. completely, both in doing this in and of itself and making a movie about it. It's, I'm James Cameron, look how cool I am.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's- if you're going to do a vanity project, I'd much rather this than Kirk Cameron Saving Christmas. Well, that's true
1: <laughs> because that's the kind of vanity project that just makes, lets the whole world know Van- vanity is insanity. Thin <laughs> line, thin line. I don't even know where to start with Kirk Cameron. No, yeah, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm this, thinking about asking for that movie for review. Just uh, as for the fuck of I mean, of it.
0: this I is know. this is very impressively shot, and it is, yeah. You know, I, I, particularly if you can see the 3D version, it's really quite astounding.
1: I, you know, I can't quite go there with you. I also think the ending comes to quite of a, into sort of a, what, that's it? <laughs> well, that, that's the thing.
0: I mean, he kind of, you know, he kind of says, well, you know, it, it, it kind of echoes the Trieste. The Trieste gets to the bottom and then they come back up. He gets to the bottom and that is the end of the story. There's no
1: alien life forms. Yeah. The,
0: then the question is, well, what do we do next? And it's almost a challenge, which I, you know, it's like him saying, you know, it took us 52 years to get back here. You know, and they did it in something which was basically welded and filled with gasoline because as their flotation tank. You know, why aren't we doing this? Why do we know so little about, you know, there is an area the size of North America. At the bottom of the trenches, which, no, which we know nothing, nothing about, about we yeah. don't even have real sonograms, uh, uh, sonar, uh, treatment sonograms. It's pregnant. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Yeah, uh, you know, I you know, and I think this is a, it's a challenge, and I I think do, that's what I like about the
1: this. most entertaining point of this for me was their shots from his last voyage to Titanic. It's like, yeah, we went there before. It's kind of old hat now. Yeah, it's like, yeah, going to the Titanic. It's just like whatever, man. I've been to the Titanic like yeah. twice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, man, you're spoiled. <laughs> what would it be like for James Cameron? Like if the apocalypse happens, and Cameron's just a normal guy. Like I want to make a show about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or at least a South Park episode. What? All right, moving on to more documentaries. We have I Am Santa Claus. Uh, nothing to do with the Black Sabbath, but um, this, but having to do with a uh, somebody who I suspect is a Satanist. Sometimes, Morland Spurlock who produced this. Because God, I can't stand him. I'm sorry. He,
0: well, uh, he didn't really produce this. He he acquired and is putting it out through his production line. Okay. And they're sticking his therefore sticking his name producer on. But it. you can um, see
1: watching this movie what he found appealing.
0: Yeah, it. it's a very Spurlock esque.
1: Yes, um, and the idea is following uh, seven, five different guys who have real beards and really look like Santa Claus, or at least you know close enough that like they adjust their look so that they do on a yearly basis. Um, who like following them through the whole year leading up to Christmas. You know, their lives, what they do, why they love Christmas. I guess probably the biggest draw here is that there is Mick Foley, who Yay! is a famous WWE wrestler. I guess it's WWE, right? Yep. Okay, because I, 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 there's another group, right? In Raw, something else? Or,
0: no, no, that's is WWE. Is that Raw, too? I, I, I just don't know much about it. Mick, Mick has wrestled. Mick was... Uh, for those of you who don't know Mick Foley, uh, but know even the slightest bit about uh, pro wrestling, he's the guy who got thrown off the top of a cage through the announcer's desk by uh, The Undertaker in the famous huh. Hell in the Cell match. Yeah, they mentioned that. Mick was, was king of the death matches in Japan. I mean, he, you know, he, his uh, trademark was a, uh, a plank with a with barbed wire wrapped around it. He took place in, took part in, in C4 matches in Japan, where literally there's bits of C4 around there. <laughs> like, he's insane. Um, he has a huge... Christmas aficionado. Oh, like like enormous,
1: and you can't help but like him for it in yeah. this movie. I mean, he's adorable. I, I'm kind of a Christmas guy myself, just not all the really chintzy trappings of it, you know. But there's certain Victorian aspects to it I really enjoy, and I like the warmth of gathering with your friends and family and showing your appreciation, what have you. Uh, please don't sing Christmas carols to me though, because I will punch you in the face. No. <laughs> except for except for Jingle Bell Rock, which I still have a strange place in my heart for.
0: But this um, is this is about five guys who. who who are Christmas Santa clauses. Yeah, and it the bulk of the focus
1: is either on Mick Foley or on the one guy who is gay. Yeah. and goes to bear conventions. Yeah, and he's stuff. a
0: huge hit on the on the bear circuit. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, that's I mean certainly even in the trailers that was the bulk of what they were selling this on and the movie is so it was so unbalanced towards those two at points. I was like, let's find out more stuff about those other guys. Maybe the other guys just aren't that interesting and they're not really, they're all kind of interchangeable as the same guy in some, in some
0: ways. But it's about what, to a degree, what drives them to to do this. I mean, some of them it's like, it's just natural. That's what they want to do. One of them, he goes, you know, people saw me walking along and, you know, I'm kind of big and hairy and, uh, this huge beard, and they automatically go, "Oh, windowless van, so I just went well i 'm going to dye my beard white <laughs> and then i 'll be less scary to people because they just have this association with it um, but it kind of touches on the politics of the Santa Claus stuff you know it's interesting that the you know the, the Texas gay Santa Claus is far less controversial in the uh, in, in, amongst the uh, Santa Claus community than you would have thought. Uh, They are, however, a little bit concerned about the Santa who runs a swingers club. Yes. Uh. (laughs) um, I mean, they certainly
1: tried to pick some more extreme examples here on the whole, and good, because otherwise it would have been a boring documentary. And it's not boring. I think if anything goes on a little too long, perhaps, there's a point you're like okay, you've already established this stuff. Let's move on. Especially with the whole, like, wait, I'm, there's a lot of that whole, like, no, I'm not upset that Santa's gay. I'm upset that that Santa's advertising himself as a Santa and running a swingers club. We get it. Let's yeah. move on. You're, you're all politically correct, but you're still a little confused about where sex falls into this whole thing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and Mick Foley, who by far is the standout attraction of this thing, because he is just like a bundle of fun as a personality
0: and he's lovely as well i've met mick a couple of times and he's just the sweetest sweetest guy yeah like i said i don't
1: like saying that i don't watch wrestling is not me saying wrestling is stupid thank you very much but no there's all the wrestlers who are who are assholes mick is just Uh, the sweetest sweetest, guy i know someone's going to take that away from there because that's what a lot of the time wrestling fans we say anything other than i love wrestling and i watch it all the time it means you hate it you can't watch everything. I watched martial arts films growing up instead of wrestling.
0: I don't know what to tell you, but Mick Foley seems like a terrific guy. Yeah. Um, and it was, the really interesting thing is that if anybody watches uh, has Raw, Mick has turned up as Saint Mick on more than a few occasions. Yeah. But he has this, where he goes, no, I'm not Santa Claus when I am do that. I'm Saint Mick because Santa Claus is kind of almost like this holy duty. And it's like, it's fascinating how seriously these guys take this. Right. And I, you know, I, you know, this is kind of, you know, it's very Spurlock-esque. It's kind of cheerful. There's a little bit of tension, but, you know, this isn't, this isn't Restrepo. This is about guys who are, who are Santa Claus, and this is how they make their money for a big chunk of the year. Agreed. Um, I really, you know, I, I enjoyed this a lot. It's very sweet. It's, you know, this is, you know, kind of, if you're looking for a Christmas documentary of which there aren't many, that that aren't ones that make you feel guilty or, you know, aren't really documentaries but lightly veiled religious propaganda, <laughs> this is pretty much it. And it actually does it rather, rather nicely.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I think ultimately I'll forget I even saw this six months from now, but it it's charming in in what it is. And, and if no other reason, like wrestling fans might enjoy seeing this to get more of a background on who Mick Foley is, what type of person he is, what he's like with his family. I like that this one, I forget which one of them, one of the guys is saying, you know, I was having trouble with like, the same guy who dyed his hair found that his personality changed when he did. He's like, I was having trouble with anger and kind of being mean, but I found that when I'm Santa Claus, I am Santa Claus. Yeah. When I, this beard is white. Even when it's not Christmas time, my whole personality changes. I'm a different person. I believe in kindness to strangers and all this stuff. And you're like, that's actually kind of fascinating. There's, there would be something, there's a more, even more interesting version of this film in someone's head out there where they get really into the psychology of that and what that means. This isn't that film. It's all surface, but it's a cute, charming surface. Well, away from documentaries for now, anyway, because I save our giveaways for uh, the end. (laughs) Uh, We've actually got, Hey, for you people who say we hate anime, we've got three animated features. Okay. Admittedly only, only, I think two of them are anime and one's from Spain, but still we've got three. And I'm, I think of the three, my favorite of them was Patema, patima Patema, Patima, patima inverted, which is an interesting concept in science fiction. The idea that there is, there was a, a scientific mishap that basically caused in a large part of the world gravity to invert. So it, Anywhere beyond the certain zone, anyone who was in that zone when it happens, everything and everything in it reacts to gravity backwards, so they would float upwards. So they built a whole underground city that's upside down. On the other side of this, you know, gate is the rest of the world. That's just how it is. But that's developed in sort of a nineteen eighty four ish type scenario uh, that they're their ultimate boogeyman is anybody inverts as they call them on the other side and of course it turns into a kind of a charming little love story between one of the inverts and a human boy on the other side who basically have to get around by hugging each other upside down like spider-man and mary jane in the first uh spider-man sam raimi film and just hopping around from place to
0: place <laughs> and, and i will point out that this film assiduously avoids uh any 69 <laughs> for just it. painfully so they like they're like <laughs> You're like at some point, somebody's gonna make this joke. Like, really? <laughs> no, like, like no. Nope, nope, nope. It's actually, it's very, very sweet.
1: Um, they look like they're sixty nine, and everywhere they they go, while in on the moon, because they like because of the gravi- gravity differential. He's like, you know, he's the one that's right side up most of the time because most of it's on his side, and so they can jump huge distances and like cause she's making him lighter, and it makes it like. It's just a weird idea
0: that works largely because of that. That, And what works best about this film is the exploration of that idea. Yes. Those sequences of them going, well, how do we interact? How do we do anything together? Are really fascinating. Extremely well handled. Um, Where this fell apart me a bit is one that the the big brother-esque villain who runs the right side up world yeah is so insanely cartoonish Yeah. so ridiculous that you're like well okay i'm not really you know in that way the anime sometimes over like, makes the villain too big True. and pantomime-ish and it, like that really was a problem for me uh also this is painfully slow and it's not the, there's individual moments that are like, you're like, oh, that could do with being paced. This is, at every level, this could have been 70 minutes long, 75 minutes long, and done everything it does. There's just so many sequences that you just, it's in the root and the branch of how this, this thing is put together. Uh-huh. It's just overly slow. And I, that was a real problem for me, because I'm really, I was really engaged by the the idea, by the dynamic of the characters. That's really charming. And really, really clever in Yeah, places. every time the two leads are on screen together, it it's works. charming. It works really well. But then it kind of face plants occasionally. And then there's a whole sequence that is, I, I felt was very much a nod um, to, um, oh, the, the early Miyazaki where the, the with the floating city. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Castle in the Sky. Castle in the Sky. Uh, there's, there's a sequence that's very much a, a nod to that. That if you sit back for 10 seconds, you go, what the hell is happening here? This doesn't actually make any sense. And there's a huge plot hole there that is just like, well, they go to this environment that doesn't make any sense. And it's not explained where it came from. Nothing about that. you know." But they it works because they need it to for the nature of the narrative. And it really kind of fell apart a little bit there for me. But... When it concentrates on those two main characters, I really I, I really liked it an awful lot because they were very sweet, very charming. Um, and, and with just enough of a sense of peril and this feeling like that they literally have to hang on to each other for dear life all the time. Yes. Which is which is actually kind of, you know, it's like, oh, it's a little bit heart-touching. <laughs> yeah, I, I think overall
1: it's a decent movie. It just, it needs a lot of tightening and it needed better designed supplementary
0: characters. Yeah. Uh, now. We well, needed supplementary characters that weren't, you know, wafer thin. Yeah. Now, much... there's actually a, char- the, a character of the Elder who is just called Elder. <laughs>
1: yeah. Maybe, maybe a more. little more work on that. Uh, next up we have a 2010 Japanese anime sci fi film called Welcome to the Space Show. Now, I, what I want you to picture is a. Overly long, one hundred and thirty-six minute long uh, anime. That was part of the reason I didn't actually, you know, I didn't actually oh, find time in the week oh,
0: to catch this. Because I I'm like Holy shit
1: moles! <laughs> that is like Adventure Time in space with guys who are really big fans of Hayao Miyazaki. That's kind of what this is going for. That just ridiculously goofy and absurd and surreal uh, type of storytelling of Adventure Time, and yet with tons of really neat creatures that have a sort of Miyazaki-ish feel to them running around all over the goddamn place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And, I mean, like, scale-wise, you can't criticize this film at all. It has aspirations to be huge and universe-building and all that. The problem is it's 136 minutes long of nonsense, which at, like, an hour and 20 minutes would have been perfectly pleasurable. Would have been like, ah, that was fun, that was cute, it was over quick, I enjoyed it, but wow, over two
0: hours and you're like, when is this gonna end? And so it basically doesn't learn the lesson of Adventure Time, which is which is short and sweet. quarter hour. Yeah, uh, and even when Adventure Time does something longer, it's 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 in installments, so you're not going to absorb too much in one go. Very true. This just feels like it's making making the error there.
1: The idea here is uh, five elementary school kids are on a school trip and they're looking for their missing class pet, a rabbit, and they find a dog that has been injured and Trigger. is unconscious. I'm sorry. Trade-up. Yeah, right? Definitely. Lose a rabbit, gain a dog. Because if you ever, like, had a rabbit pet before, you know almost anything is a trade-up from a rabbit. (laughs) Uh, The dog wakes up and turns out to be able to walk on its hind legs and talk like a normal person because it's actually an alien named Poochie. or Poochie, of course. Uh, (laughs) No, wait, I have to ask. At the end of this, does Poochie return to his home planet? (laughs) Well, sort of. There we go. Um... And he says, look, you help me out. So I'll tell you what, I can't take you out in the deep space, but I can take you to the moon as a reward for for uh, helping me. So they get on a ship and uh, they go to the moon. But then a bunch of stuff goes terribly totally wrong with immigration, literally. And they end up having to travel all over space to all these different planets and space stations and wacky places that only Douglas Adams would think of in a fever dream um, <laughs> that to try and basically eventually get back to Earth while still trying to find that goddamn rabbit. Um, It's not Alice in Wonderland here, although I'm sure somewhere in the story someone said, ooh, it's like Alice in Wonderland. Nope, it really isn't. (laughs) But there is a lot of really insanely cute and clever things going on. It's just, like I said, you can only have so much absurdity in one run before you just start to get tired of it, no matter how well done it is. And I think this is well done. It's just... Man, you gotta be stoned for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Like and good good in stone, not one of those that's gonna wear off before the movie's over either. (laughs) Yes, I am. Yeah, in fact you may have to pause and go outside, reload and come back. I am advocating the use of drugs just this one time. (laughs) I I don't get in trouble for that, right? That's legal. I can Uh, do that.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure that's absolutely fine and not an issue at all. No. Not the
1: slightest. Well, the third of the three anime, even though this third one is not anime, I believe it's Spanish, is Nocturna. And Nocturna might as well be out of the mind of Neil Gaiman in a lot of ways, I think, and me, because it's got cats all over the goddamn all place. All over. <laughs> uh, Nocturna is a... Let's see, how do I say this? Um, it's a little boy who can't sleep and finds out that there's an entire bureaucracy of that exists only when the lights go down of like trying to make sure little children sleep comfortably in their beds and are happy. Um, and something's gone wrong because the stars are beginning to blink out and he seems to be the only one who's noticed. i.e., even gives a shit and has to wind his way through this bureaucracy of like various people who have ultra specific jobs in the land of sleep to, uh, Try and get an answer to this question, which of course turns out to be a much bigger problem than anybody realized. Um, and he's helped by this large, goofy guy that is sort of the head of all the cats, whose the job cat it is. the shepherd. Who, who's jo- yeah, he's the cat shepherd. And his job is to, like, the cat's job. Every kid gets their own cat that basically sits by their, their windows and meows or wags their tail and it helps the kid be asleep, ultimately. But as everything starts breaking down, so does that, yada, yada. And I think that this is a, it's a thoroughly cute, much better constructed in terms of like a set series of rules universe than the other two films we were talking about. Much more interesting supplementary characters than there. A lot of these, like the I, I really particularly love. There's a whole society of the little creatures that are the lights and all the street lights who are. Pissed off a lot of the time.
0: <laughs> pissed off little uni. They're basically like angry, angry tiny teamsters with glowing butts. Exactly, and they're very likable for that Yes. Reason. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this is this is a classic. Uh, small boy has to a small child has to save a fantasy world. I, what I loved about this was that the idea of of the night as something that you've really got to work hard at to maintain yeah. is so well executed. You know, through from you know, the, the cats to you know, little throwaway characters like the the little, there's somebody responsible for making kids wet the bed. There's, yeah. there's somebody for
1: their, uh, there's a group of women whose whole job it is to perfectly muss children's hair, give them bedhead.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's other ones who are responsible for for the dew. There's foggers. There's you know the the, the whole structure of the, the, world the orchestra is so
1: perfectly of the night. Yeah, They'll just make all the sounds that come in the night. It's an actual orchestra with a conductor who does it. And You're like that's really clever and and once again Neil Gaimanish.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I thought this was um, just delightful. Yeah, you know this is uh, you know I, it, if you're looking honestly for something that I think both pe- both adults and kids are going to be able to sit down and enjoy. That's not going to be a Disney or isn't going to be, you know, um, you know, I, I really disliked Ernest and Celestine because I thought yeah. there was just so many clumsy things about it that were just overly art. Agreed. That was trying too hard. This, you know, has a real, it, it's got a total dream logic. It carries that to its natural conclusion by remembering a dream logic has to have a logic. You know, the world is different, but it operates under set rules and it does that so well. The, you know, it's kind of, all the characters are almost like bubbles. They're, you know, they've got this kind of, you know, dreamlike weight to them. True. The animation style is very distinctive. It, this really worked for me. I think more so than, than any of the other, um, uh, animated releases this week, you know, I, it, because it, it goes all the way through. It ca, you know, and it, it, the ending, I won't spoil it, but the ending actually is, almost a reference to a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, it kind of, is. <laughs> with far less gore. Um, you know, it, is... but it's, you know, it's about it's about a kid becoming a little bit braver, and this... it, you know, it's a classic, almost very like nineteen thirties, nineteen forties kids book. Yeah, in a way, it's got it's got that. But I I really really enjoy this a lot. And oddly, this came out all the way back in two thousand
1: seven. And we're just now getting it here. Really? I don't know what took so long because this is... I mean, the last 10 years have had a wealth of re-releases of really good animated films and even, like, high-profile animated films getting released immediately here, especially from France, which this was a Spanish-French co-production. I mean, it was Filmax. I have no idea why it took so long for this to come uh, over inexplicable
0: here. Inexplicable and, and uh, utterly undeserved because this is actually... Uh, yeah, I mean, if, seriously, if you're looking for something to sit around uh, and watch over christmas i think this really is a, a very good contender
1: agreed
0: thoroughly charming
1: well you know we're gonna go to television now and uh, yeah i told you guys it was a long show <laughs> and uh we're with something you didn't get to see uh this uh this time around but i did which is the newsroom i'm a big fan of the newsroom i have been ever since i saw that viral video that's been going on on the internet of jeff daniel's absolutely spectacular most liberal moment in history speech uh that if you google it it's like speech from the uh, the newsroom i mean i showed it to my mother was in town this re- weekend and i showed it to her and she just like started crying through it it's like one of those like ones that'll make mo- liberal moderates if you will start like wanting to stand up and salute the flag you know like asking the question well, just to premise the whole show, because really this is the premise of the show, a student asked Jeff Daniels, who is an experienced older news anchor in a group type setting at a university, uh, why do you think America is the greatest country in the world? And everyone gives like, the, the on one side, he's got an ultra liberal, on the other side, he's got an ultra conservative, give, both give expected answers. He says, it's not, and proceeds to explain exactly why it's not, which seems like Like, blindingly obvious after he says (laughs) that it's not. It's like, you know what? I can prove to you on paper, statistically, right now that America is not the greatest country in the world. And it's really hard to argue with his logic. And he decides to reinvent his career, he is going to go back to where he started as a newsman with that whole the, the reason he became one, watching Walter Cronkite, and that when journalism mattered, this is a, a fantasy by Aaron Sorkin that is not going to happen in the America that we know anytime soon. So basically this
0: is you know a mirror universe uh, version of what actually happened to Keith Oberman. I mean, it's, yeah, it's Yeah, I mean, this let's remember, this was greenlit uh, just after Oberman got Shit canned right. in a very heavy way from MSNBC. So it really, I, like, I, and, and the fact that Sorkin kind of dances around that, I, like, has always kind of pissed me off about this show because, like, yeah, you know, I miss Keith Oberman doing new stuff. Yeah, really, really badly. He was so
1: good at yeah, it. Oh, it was so great. Um. And this, like, it's always, the stories in here take place quite a few years before now. Like, the first season is during 2010, this is during 2011, and it actually will deal with the news events as they're happening, as the show goes along, and how they react, which means this type of very Sorkin-esque, because it's Aaron Sorkin, uh writing... <laughs> um it's very dense, the amount of stuff and the way the jokes fly and the amount of ways the stories dovetail in and out of each other. It's complex writing, to be sure. This is this is A-class television writing that just isn't going to work for everyone. And unlike The West Wing, which is, is surely the sister show, too, if there ever was one, um, The West Wing kept to that feeling from that first episode The Newsroom has of, like, we can do better it always has that feel we can do better. And that's always the, its biggest priority there. Even when it's dealing with the personal lives of people, it's always ultimately about coming to this very important goal. This The newsroom's biggest fault is that it gets sidetracked too much in a lot of the subplots about these people's personal lives in a way that you just don't care. I don't care who's dating who in the newsroom. I really don't give a shit. And the second season, unfortunately, starts really getting into some of that. I mean, I felt that's the same thing that sank uh, Studio 60 Almost immediately was that it jumped right in. Well, two things: that it jumped right into that immediately, and two, it wasn't. Who gives a shit whether or not you make a successful show compared to The West Wing? Yeah, at least not with Aaron Sorkin's style of writing. Um, the newsroom smartly. And also, yeah, you know, pe- people were going, uh,
0: "Studios sixty or thirty rock," and they went with thirty rock. Thirty rock was the better show.
1: Yeah. Um, Sorry, fans of Studio 60, but it just wasn't that great.
0: I, I I liked it, but yeah, Thirty Rock you know was was a it was more palatable format. Yeah, uh, and b the the writing, particularly in the first season, was you know just a lot sharper.
1: But you know, the newsroom has that strength of saying like that fantasy of like, what if we could save journalism? What if we could make journalism about truth again and not about manipulation? And even within itself, fighting with people who are going like it, it, the, their staff that like are not sure whether to follow Jeff Daniels or crucify him, um, find themselves and even he getting trapped in the cycles of thinking of like, but I know that I'm right, so I'll do anything possible to make sure that it gets out there. Oh wait, now I'm becoming like them. You know, there's a lot of really fascinating stuff that goes on in the show and some whip smart writing. I mean, when the show is on. It's so on, it's unbelievable. It's, like, just a pleasure to watch. Sorkin, to me, has always been to listen to his dialogue. Like, I'm just... I'm sitting on the edge of my seat just admiring his craft of the way he writes people talking to each other. He does have the problem of making everybody kind of seem like the same character sometimes. (laughs) He has a problem with creating distinctions in character, and I I suppose that's why we're seeing a lot more of the, let's get more into these personal lives and more into these, their little subplots. Once again, the problem is with this style of writing. We just don't care about that shit. We, we care about, we want to, this show to mean something. And I don't think the newsroom means something to the same level the West Wing does, but it's still, I think an excellent show. Season two is an excellent season that has some big surprises in store for, for the characters along the way, as they deal with the various and sundry news stories of the day uh, comes to a kind of a, a, a startling and surprising emotional beat of an ending. And of course we only get one more season, the currently airing season three, boy, it was tough for me to watch dumb and dumber too <laughs> uh, with knowing that the newsroom got canceled. You know, it's just like America doesn't want a very intelligent Jeff Daniels trying to fight for people's right to hear journalism based on truth. They want fart gags. They want fart gags. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh... yeah. I know, I know, I'm getting hyperbolic about it, and I understand the arguments to the uh, the opposition. I just, for me, the newsroom is a show that, yes, it's a fantasy. So was the West Wing. It's a fantasy that I love to let my, to lose myself in for a while. So I will be definitely going on and watching the third and last season, and hope they wrap it up nicely, and hope that his next show isn't something about like, hey, it's um, it's a very re- reality based version of the Muppet Show. <laughs> Someone out there just went, ooh, wait, I ooh, want to see that. greenlit. No, no, bad.
0: I want to produce a
1: credit. Bad, bad, bad. Stop. <laughs> All right. Well, we are continuing with television and going to talk wait hold on I gotta skip around so it's like I'm going to shows that only I saw to shows you saw too um oh yeah let's talk about Clone Wars The Lost Missions which is one that you saw and I didn't see yeah because I still have this chip on my shoulder about George Lucas oh you're so weird and wrong you just need to just stop I can't help it I felt I felt betrayed I I was raped by the prequels raped I tell you
0: I'm gonna throw something so hard (laughs) Anyway, moving on to sanity. Um, yeah, uh, Star Wars: Clone Wars, the uh, the Lost Missions. This is um, when Disney took over uh, the, the Star Wars franchise. They one of the first things they did was that they cancelled the Clone Wars uh, and transferred uh, Dave Filoni and his team over to doing Rebels. Rebels, which is you know, good fun. I'm really enjoying. Haven't seen uh, it yet, but people are telling it's, me it's, it's good. really good. It's uh, I still much prefer Clone Wars, I know we're early on in in Rebels, I think it's a long way to go Clone Wars, the great thing about it was that it started off as well, we're going to have we're going to concentrate on the characters we know we're going to look at Anakin and Obi-Wan and they're going to be the centroid and then over time it built up this huge ensemble cast enormous of background characters and clone troopers became who become major figures. Um, this They were starting production on this series um, when it got cancelled and they said, well, look, we, we're we going to get it out in some way or other. It may just be that we do the first arc. It may just be that we release the animatics. We're really not quite sure. They finally went, well, yeah, we may as well finish this. We may as well do this final storyline that it really kind of fits in and clears up some details after you know, the big emotional payoff of Season 5, uh, which is one of a yeah, real gut-kick moment uh, in, in storytelling that Ahsoka goes, so you didn't trust me and you really, you know, you thought I was going to betray the Jedi Order and, and that I'm the bad guy, and even now you believe that I didn't? I can't be part of this anymore. You'd always wondered how they're going to pay that off, and it really worked. This is about, well, the, the first plot line is, what is Order 66? What is the thing that makes all the clone troopers suddenly turn around in um Revenge of the Sith and kill all the Jedi? And it's about that. And, you know how you are you know, how the clones are programmed, how they're developed, with their sense of worth. And you don't see any of the major characters from the from the films. This is about Fives, who is one of the clone troopers that you've you've grown to know over the series. You move on through time uh, and they th- they explain a lot of stuff that becomes you know, that is kind of unexplained. Between uh, Attack of the Clones and Avengers of the Sith, uh, which is always one of the things that Lucas designed this series to be about, which right. is you know, filling in those background details, explaining the, the, the wars, explaining the transition. So the first one is about Order sixty six. Then you move into the question of exactly how um, dead Jedi communicate with living Jedi, and those those important sequences um, in in the films. You know, I love this this series stylistically, the way that they. Created characters who look like they're carved from balsa wood. They almost yeah, look they like marionettes, which I know a lot of people found very off-putting initially. Uh, but it really worked for me. And this is a show that is not afraid of getting its hands bloody. Characters die. Yeah, uh, you know, this is a this is a war series with a major spy element. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, this isn't going to be something you're going to be able to jump into. Uh, from you know, and just go. Oh, it's it, it's the lost missions. It's obviously just some supplement that I'm not don't need to know the other show. You really do need to have gone back and watched the entirety of the Clone Wars to get the details from this. But I think the Clone Wars is one of the most rewarding television experiences of the past few years. Good lord, I really, you know, I, I, uh, I really hugely I, see. It. I only watched
1: the in, the initial movie they did to start it off, and I thought it was kind of bland and boring.
0: You, I think the thing is that it it it, it is such a big picture show. It really ha- you know, expands right. out and builds a world, and you become emotionally involved with what happens to them. And you, and the best thing about it is, you consistently see people making bad decisions. That they, you know, this is where the errors that lead to uh, Revenge of the Sith they where they're where they're made. And this long discussions about, you know, well, the clones are they really people? Are right. they have, do they have personalities? Are they disposable? You know, if you can just, you know, if all they're being designed for is a war, then, well, what happens to them? Do, right. you, do you even have to care about them? And it does that. In, it does that extremely well. And I, you know, the the long payoff of this and this kind of, you know, just, I I, 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 you know, I've been very critical of a lot of the stuff that Disney has done with the Star Wars franchise, but the fact that they went back and said, "No, we kind of owe you this. We promised you season six. Uh, this is really season five and a half." This is really Yeah, you know, it's no, it's only twelve episodes, but it really brings it into a much more emotionally satisfying ending that ties a lot of the little bits and pieces uh, yeah, together. Yeah, you know, yeah. If you if you watch the earlier stuff, you've probably already seen this on Netflix. But you know, I you know, fully you know, endorse, yeah, you know, people going back and because the whole thing's now on Netflix, go back and watch it and then you'll see how much this fits in with that.
1: And this comes with also in the extras is four uh, more lost episodes in an arc called the Utapu arc uh, that is, but it's pre and anim- animatics and but with the final voice work and music um, and apparently, it's quite good with Obi Wan and Anakin as the main characters tra- tracking down a
0: crystal that's fallen into the an- hands of the Separatists. Uh, they, oh, and interestingly, the uh, the, uh, the Atapu, the the Atapu right. crystal actually, which is the the plot in this, it actually turns up later in uh, it actually turns up like episode four or five uh, of um, uh, Rebels. Oh, okay. They actually, they're, 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 they're seeding a lot of stuff in
1: there. Well, yeah, I mean, like, it seems close. There's a crystal capable of firing a tremendously destructive beam of energy. Oh, why would Palpatine ever need one of those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I wonder what that's going to set up. But uh, And then there's a 60-minute The Clone Wars Declassified. So it sounds like if you like The Clone Wars, this is a can't-miss-it type of set.
0: Yeah, and these releases have always been really, really high quality, so, yeah. Uh, another television series that I, you know, I didn't
1: even, I hadn't even heard about, but that has actually been getting really good reviews. And, uh, I, I was really looking forward to seeing it was because of that was getting on, which has been, um, airing on, uh, HBO. I think I pulled up the wrong page for this, but it is a series in a hospital, um,
0: that is Which is actually a, a, an American adaptation of a, a British series called uh, called Getting On. Yes. So you are kind of looking at the right page. Yeah, I'm kind of. Yeah, I'm trying to no, no, find the back link. up. Back up trying up. to find the link to the American version. It's, it's at the top. It's at the top? Yeah, there. Oh, I don't see it. And, and US oh, version of Getting On. <laughs> and US we version. We have to have background information because we
1: can't hold all this stuff. In well, our Jesus,
0: head. shit. I mean, you really should see the stack of discs that is towering in front of us. It's this is just a, this crazy. This terrifying. Uh, it's a bunch of. It's nurses.
1: In a hospital and one doctor who all are terrible, terrible people in one way or another and are dealing with a absolutely untenable environment, like just the worst. All right. So to, to forward this, my girlfriend is a social worker and she has to work in hospitals in like often less than ideal environments. And she couldn't watch the show with me because she was like, I know it's a comedy, but When you're experiencing it, and it actually is like this a lot of the time, it's not funny. (laughs) But watching it from the outside, where you don't actually know these people, I found it actually pretty goddamn funny. It's worse getting on is so dark because of just, you know, I mean, people are dying all over the place and getting spewing bodily fluids sometimes. And it's just, it's just gross. There's lots of questions. Like, does anyone know where that poop came from? It's like the premise of the whole first episode. Laurie Metcalf Metcalf from Metcalf, Metcalf from Roseanne plays Dr. Jenna James, not a porn star, mind you, but that's just a, just a doctor. I don't know if I'd want to see Laurie Metcalf in porno. Uh, who is the most neurotic person on the planet who is trying to build basically a list of, uh, like a new list of all the different types of poop and submit it to some medical foundation. So she can get a name for herself. She wants to rise up and she has been kind of finding, finding herself treading water in this go nowhere emergency or a geriatric ward. Uh, you've got Alex Borstein who is, uh, actually pretty if anything the protagonist in some ways of this character is dawn she's just her husband's left her took her car took her dog um and she ends up screwing up her job more often than not because she's so emotional and she's so wrapped up in her own personal like sense of loss and depression that she that gets in the way of her actual job a lot of the time uh nisi nash is a just returning to work a uh, nurse uh, who is basically training how to do her job underneath everyone else and is kind of like, if anything, the, the only sane person on the whole show. She's like, Isn't okay. that Nisi Nash's general job? Yeah, I think so. C- kind of, a- anyway, the point is a bunch of characters who uh, are not terribly great at their jobs, but it's the worst of circumstances, so who could be? doing the best job they can anyway under the circumstances and it is funny it's just not for everyone i don't know who it's for because it's not for nurses or social workers, clearly, who are like, no, that's my job. I can't watch that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is well done. I'd be surprised to see if it keeps getting renewed or it even has a lot of viewers. But, you know, such as it is, uh, before we get into the big television show, I'm just going to mention offhand, I didn't get a chance to watch this, but I laugh that it exists. They put out a giant box set of seasons one through five and one big Sweet case of Moses, ancient Aliens! Oh my lord! The, the uh, History Channel, and we now have to say that with
0: quotation marks. <laughs> I think that's the History Channel? Yeah, the History uh, yeah, Channel. Yeah, I mean, they, like, the... they, they, they have plundered this appalling well for uh, seven years now. Of, yeah. Hey, let's pretend that, uh, you know, we, we found evidence of ancient. I mean, this is just, you know, the same old schlock. And the the shamelessness of seven seasons of this is
1: quite remarkable. I mean, it's all inspired by the 1968, sadly, best-selling book by Eric Von Daniken. Uh, Chariots, Chariots of, of the, the gods. gods! I mean, I read it when I was a kid, and I I was all like, oh my god, UFOs are real. You know, when I didn't know any better. Sorry. Then you grew
0: pubes. <laughs> and you're like, oh no, Eric, Eric Von Daniken's a loon. Wait, this is
1: filled with inconsistencies and flat-out provable lies. You know, but nonetheless... This whole show is based on his idea that this ancient like an empire. that ancient aliens came down and basically seeded the evolution of man and the evolution of civilization and. I, and yeah, what's yeah, even
0: it. more amazing about it is that even if you believe that, how you do seven seasons of this tripe? Yeah, and this is, is this st-
1: is just five sounding.
0: seasons. Oh, really? Yeah,
1: it's like uh, it's six discs, I believe, or six uh, sets inside of it. It's because one is season five, volume one; one is season five, volume two. But um,
0: yeah, you I, mean that they, they that you, know. you you're even jibbed on the extra two seasons? That, <laughs> that somebody has cheated us out of? That's
1: outrageous. My mistake. This is seasons 1 through 6 that just came out. 82 episodes oh including 12 new to DVD oh. over 68 hours of bullshit formed to look like the truth. <laughs> you know, okay. Yes. I am a skeptic. It's true. And that's an ugly word to a lot of people who want to believe, as Fox Mulder put it so eloquently. Hey, I want to believe, too. And there is... I want to believe that the History Channel has some like a shred of credibility left, most importantly. There are some interesting documentaries out there about UFOs and the history of UFOlogy. And there are some questions that are just interesting enough you go, I don't know, maybe. But... Ancient Aliens is not it.
0: <laughs> this is this is the start of the slippery slope that leads uh, leads us to um, you know, Duck Dynasty. Yeah, I'm convinced of it. This yeah. is just this is just bilge. I mean, it's not even well made. I've, I've watched a few episodes, and one you will get extremely frustrated by you know, seven six seasons of exactly the same structure of like, oh, oh, we're coming up to an outbreak. Oh, look, there's something mysterious. Oh, no, it's just a thing. <laughs> this is exactly the same structure that you see on things like Storage Wars. I, mean, I, I, I cannot see who on Earth, on the planet, is one of going to go for a, a 82 hours of this shit. And then at the same time, Destination Truth, which at least had Josh Gates wandering around going, yeah, falling off a bike in a different foreign country. Holy balls! I'm an imbecile. <laughs> Isn't this wonderful? Uh That gets cancelled, and this crap keeps going. Yeah. Yeah, we miss you, Josh. And, they, and, and you know, sci-fi should have given you another season. I... I I
1: can't figure it out either, except that, like I said, people, they want escapism. They want to believe that there's something else going on out there, something else that explains things, makes them feel better about things. Even if it's nefarious, that makes them feel better. And this is just this, they've taken this crappy book and world built around it, taking every tiny little, huh, Look at that thing on that uh, cuneiform. C- c- that looks like it could be an alien, right? Sure, it's an alien. Let's write a whole script about it. Taking yeah. it and building it into this giant myth that's all, like, I mean, there's almost nothing on here that any even mildly reputable scientist couldn't turn around and go, no, bullshit. You didn't even mention all these other
0: valid, well-known facts in
1: order to try and sell this as what you're selling it as.
0: The, the only purpose for this show to exist at this point is to give Joel McHale more to bitch about on the suit. <laughs> that's it. That's it. (laughs) Moving, moving on. Yes. And let's move on
1: on. to the highlight of the television section, as well as my pick of the week. That's right. Finally, on a home release, for the first time ever, and I mean not on VHS, not on Laserdisc, not on DVD, the original 60s Batman television show with Burt Ward and Adam West, now in one Fancy-schmancy Blu-ray package that, if you press a button on the side, actually plays the Batman Which theme.
0: Which scared the crap out of Monkey. He gave you the funniest look, then. Well, he does that a lot,
1: though. Yeah, no change though. Yeah, every time I fart, he's like, come on, seriously, dude?
0: Yep. Uh, yeah,
1: this is definitely my pick of the week. I mean, I can't even imagine anything else even mildly getting in the way of how awesome this is. I posted a picture of myself with this on Facebook a few weeks ago, and I got death threats. Not just a few, a lot huh. of death threats. <laughs> of course, nowadays in today's world, people will death threat about almost anything. Yeah. But...
0: People have lost a little bit of their, their uh,
1: sanity. Yeah, balance. now it's going to be a uh, Batman gate. So, yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Is this terrific? This is, it's hard to believe that this show, which was society consuming when it originally aired in the sixties, only lasted three seasons. Yeah. That being said, I think, Everyone immediately grabbed onto it because look how bright and colorful it is. It is the spirit of the 60s. I mean, in the first episode, Batman go-go dances with a girl in a miniskirt, for God's sakes, you know, in a, in a dance club. Um, it's funny as hell because it's spoofing all the social mores of the time. Um, and at the same time, little kids just took it at face value. Yeah, They just loved it for being a superhero. It was this, Hugely fun, with a cliffhanger every week, uh, bright, hysterical superhero show. That was me when I was a kid. I took it totally seriously. Loved it. Bought every piece of Batman... Crap, I could find. I mean, I was born in the 70s and they were still putting out Batman stuff in relation to the show because the power of it had lasted that long, at least to kids. I think that adults fell off after a while. I was like, okay, we got it. Let's move on. And that's ultimately why it came to an end. I think Adam West as well was getting a little freaked out about something he was, everyone was afraid of at that time, which was being so typecast in a role that you can't do anything else. And sure enough, Adam West is the poster boy for being so typecast in a role yep. <laughs> you can never really do anything else. Yeah,
0: I actually got to interview him uh, uh, about a year or two ago and I asked him about that and he said, you know, it took me a very long time to come to peace with Batman. Yeah. like yeah, you know, And now he does. Now he, you know, oh, he yeah. absolutely has and he's like, yeah, I'm fine with it. But for a long time, he was like, I, I ran away from this. And I think that, you know, this now, this set is... Uh, there, there is not going to be any double dipping on this. No. I mean, you know, there's you still, a, there's still a certain charm about you know Saturday night putting on METV TV, and they show Batman, and they show The Virginian, and they show they show Wonder Woman, and it really does feel like you're back in that. But you know, there comes a point where that's only going to be so limited. Yeah, uh, th- this is a show that. You know, because everything was shot in film, you can really give it a restoration that is really gonna make this you know, this is a, a pop art masterpiece. Oh complete that's the best way I could have thought of to describe it. The only thing missing from
1: the set at all is the Batman movie. Yeah. Which came out well after the series, apparently.
0: It was a return. Still, you would have thought, uh, I mean, I'm wondering why it's not in there. That like a like must, a yeah. weird omission. It does That'd seem like a rights weird omission. You know? Yeah, and,
1: but that's all I can think, because otherwise it certainly would have been in here. I mean, because this set is the mega set. I mean, I mean, not only do you get all these episodes that look and sound pristine on Blu-ray, they couldn't be, there's no way they could have made them look better than they do, but you get like a Hot Wheels replica Batmobile, which is cool. <laughs> You get an Adam West scrapbook, a little tiny a little hardback book with uh, all sorts of like behind the scenes photos from Adam West's own collection, 44 vintage trading cards in a pack, basically re- <sighs> reproductions of the classic original Batman series trading cards they put out, ultraviolet digital copy of every single episode, a separate book that's the episode guide, and then a bunch of like little featurettes that are completely fucking charming. I mean, hanging with Batman is basically about just what we talked about earlier, about Adam West being typecast, going through the period of like, fuck what now? And eventually coming to terms with it and, you know, going like, look, I would have, I would have picked something different for myself probably if I had to choose to have a longer and more varied career, but this is what I got. And all things considered, I mean, I'm in the hearts of children for decades because of the show you know i affected an entire culture a
0: civilization yeah. <laughs> you know, being batman and that's not so the, bad the fact that he's on family guy as mayor adam west yeah you know they, 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 there's a great story that's told about william shatner who's very very similar position of like you know kind of like so big in relation to certain things there's like you always see them right um they I mean, always associate them with particular things. Uh, and he was once asked, you know, it's like, people say you've you've got a big ego. And he said, I'm the third most recognizable face on the planet after Mickey Mouse and Chairman Mao. <laughs> What's ego about me knowing that people know who I am? Right. Like, and, and in the same way, there's kind of that same thing with Adam West of like just. You know, he always will be. Well,
1: it's appropriate to follow that up with Holy Memorabilia, Batman, where he goes, he himself is on the tour talking to the world's biggest collectors of original Batman TV show memorabilia. And he is so selfless and charming and loving about all this and, like, hugs these guys and, you know, like, will you please put this mask on? He's like, absolutely, of course. I mean, you're like, you don't see that kind of thing in other Extras about memorabilia, which there are many out there on various sets, uh, the guy himself actually getting involved with all this. Uh, there's Batmania Born, building the world of Batman, that looks at the art and design behind it, which is, of course, is a major part of the attraction of Batman. Uh, Bats of the Round Table, which is Kevin Smith leading a discussion of a bunch of people I know I know leading a discussion which who can't stop talking about himself of course But uh, sitting at dinner with, with Adam West and that's probably the weakest part of all this there's so many better people they could have gotten I mean yeah you've got Jim Lee which is cool you've got one of the Batman collector guys who was pretty charming which is cool but it's like ultimately it's why well, wow, you really I mean at least you didn't get Frank Miller thank God yeah. <laughs> that would have been a worse choice than Frank than uh, Kevin West uh, there's inventing Batman Batman's in the words of Adam West in two episodes, where uh he actually it, it shows the episode and then it'll pause and show him looking at the script notes and talking to uh, with his original scripts, the script notes he wrote and why he made the decisions he did. And it's kind of a neat idea to mm-hmm. do it like that. Like just about the, basically about the first two episodes. Uh th- And then one of the most fun things on here is not, na na Batman, which is a bunch of stars uh recounting their favorite Batman memories, even though they're all people from, there's like four television shows and it's all people from those TV shows that you wouldn't draw any connection to Batman from like, uh, uh, God, what's that one with that Australian actor who's like a like a mesmerist or something like that? I forget the name of it, but the mentalist. Yes. Uh, and you're like, why are they asking these people? Probably because they were filming nearby. Yes. Yeah. That's probably why. There's not a lot of work put into getting appropriate people, but it's a charming bit anyway. There's a Burt Ward screen test with Adam West. There's uh, a actor screen test for Lyle Wagoneer and Peter Diehl, a tribute to James Blakely, and the pilot sort of, it's like nine minutes long or so, for Batgirl, which was going to be a spinoff of Batman. Batgirl, which didn't appear until the third season of the show, but they were going to give her her own show. Obviously never materialized, but I didn't even know this existed, so it's kind of cool to have this in the set. I can't say enough good things about this. This is probably my favorite thing I've gotten all year. (laughs) Um, I grew up with the show as a kid and loved it like that, and as an adult, I can totally love the hell out of all the satire, the mockery. I kind of wish... The only thing I wish this had was a trivia track, because a lot of the jokes are of the so of the time, like uh, celebrities appearing in very small roles. And you're not sure why they're there unless you get the context of what was happening in the news stories related to them at that time or whatever movie they were in. It would have been nice to have something like that. Yeah. But come on, seriously, I'm like, <laughs> I, I want it all. <laughs> this, this is absolutely terrific.
0: Yeah, I got to say, I mean, this is such an astounding release, and the fact that this is the first time that the, the whole thing has been out, yeah. is Ever. you know is kind of bizarre. My, you know, so I think I, I think this is currently tying for me for pick of the week with uh, Nocturna, which I enjoyed hugely, uh, in a very very different way.
1: Yeah, of course, of course, as movies go, yeah, I can see that. As far as uh, giant box sets go, this easily wins. Oh yeah, not just because it's the only giant box set we're reviewing this week. Uh, well, you know what? We've reached that time of the show that we've won out of regular reviews to do. The only reviews we have left are those reviews that are our giveaway! We've got two different titles that we're giving away to you this week. The Ew. first of which is a... you. If you've watched any Hong Kong movies recently, there's a good chance if you watched the trailers that you saw this trailer for Iceman, which has been proposed as a Big budget for Hong Kong uh, fantasy martial arts series uh, starring Donnie Yen, who now has rightfully so become a superstar. It took him a long time, but he's finally at that point as, as a ancient, ancient imp, imp, imperial guard who was framed for something he didn't do uh, and as... Somehow ended up getting frozen and waking up in um modern times and now he's do. trying to negotiate modern times while meanwhile two of the other guards are kind of chasing him and because they think he's bad that used to be his best friends and there's also these various other people in the society and government who are played by the same actors as evil scheming people from the past. And it's not clear if they are the same people or they're the distant relatives, but I'm sure all that will be explained when they release Iceman part two, because it ends on a cliffhanger and says coming soon, Iceman part two.
0: Yeah. But yeah, Such as it is. Um, oh, so it's, so it's got a bit of a, a, bit of the, uh, the Tai Chi zeros about it. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it wants- kind I found that a little frustrating that it's like, uh, yo, you you can have a film be self contained. Uh, yeah. Without, without, you know, and still have a cliffhanger, which I, I think is a bad trait of, of uh, Chinese and Hong Kong cinema at the moment.
1: I mean, the probably the best stuff about this is Donnie Yen as a fish out of water dealing with a bunch of like sort of young Hong Kong uh, hip people who don't know what to do with them. Like, quickly realize and find out that he is indeed from the past and are relatively nonplussed by such a a realization, but him trying to fit in with civilization, I mean, it's you know, like a long drawn out well, I guess it is long and drawn out on Sleepy Hollow, but you know, same thing except this guy can do martial arts Um, Man, I
0: really... This is one of those moments where it's really making me wish that a boy in this samurai got a release over here. Yeah, right? That was so good. Yeah, that was so good and and for some unknown reason I don't think it ever got picked up.
1: And the thing is there is fun stuff in here. I mean, it's Donnie Yen. I mean, fuck. He's clearly very good at martial arts. There are some very good martial arts sequences in, in here. It's whenever they try to go for big special effects that you're like going, Hong Kong, don't do it if you don't have the money to do it. Oh, dear. You know? I mean, so far they've been... Pretty bad about that sort of thing. Like, have you heard about Beneath the Waves? Ooh. Oh, that was China's answer to Avatar. That they put out a trailer for, said coming in 2013, and it was supposed to be Avatar but with mermaids, basically under the waves, and it looks awful. Yeah. And it's all with American actors speaking English and everything, but all financed and made in, in in China. And oh boy, like likely to never be released, and partially because yeah, it looks like shit. You know, I'm sorry, you don't have, like, Cameron-level people building your worlds for you. And if you're going to tell those kind of stories and market it as such, you you kind of need to have that.
0: is producing a lot of Uwe when it comes to that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, they kind of mm-hmm. are. And at its worst, that's Iceman's biggest problem, quite frankly. Um It does look like it, it as well... It's building towards something that does look like it's going to be awesome. Unfortunately, we don't get it because it ends before it happens. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I can't go and call this a great movie. It's an okay movie. Uh, but fans, well, you can
0: get it without spending any money. But, so hurrah. Yeah,
1: fans of Donnie Yen and people who like fantasy, crazy fantasy time travel movies are still probably going to get something out of this. And we are going to give away some copies of this one. What do you got to do to win it?
0: Well, you have to... uh follow us uh, 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 at oneofus.net on Twitter yes and using the hashtag uh, Iceman giveaway um, if you could have any historical figure frozen and uh, suddenly turn up in uh, modern America who would it be? I'm just picturing
1: the end of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure right now in my head you know the big school show with abraham lincoln yeah. and genghis khan and all that yeah yeah like let's face it that was the most awesome moment in cinema yeah ever. and
0: I, actually i'm gonna take off <laughs> take off the table anybody who was uh in uh, bill and Ted's the movies. payoff of bill and ted yeah. uh and also Encino man you're not allowed any of them so <laughs> so who would you who would you freeze to uh, uh defrost in, in modern times and why
1: yeah uh and no no one for sex purposes I'm going to say that call. Yeah.
0: Away. No, no Marilyn Monroe or anything like that.
1: No, come on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Now we've got two giveaways. This yes. Week. And the other. How giveaway, kind are we? The other giveaway is something I I feel like I can I can say something uh, a little more deterministically awesome about, and that is the new documentary about Muhammad Ali, of which there are many, many for the record. Many. Uh, why Why are these pages pulling up? That's so weird. Like weird shit. I didn't call call-up is coming up. Uh, I Am Ali, and this is the first documentary I feel about him that really is about him as a human being. Yeah, Not so much about, like, I mean, we've, like, Rumble in the Jungle is phenomenal, if you have not seen that movie. It's so good about building up to the biggest fight of his career. You know, I mean, great stuff, edge of your seat watching, even though you know what's going to happen. This is a story of just a guy who was just a decent dude like i mean who went out of his way to be incredibly helpful to almost everyone around him despite having a bit of a problem with the philandering
0: yeah <laughs> also you know and the, the you know it deals with this part of him as well that you know he is this just incredibly charismatic loquacious fast on his feet intellectually you know just light years ahead of everybody around him. Yeah. You know, this was, he was the first boxer who talked for himself. Yep. That, I mean, that alone was a landmark moment. It's thought to be pretty, like, like, uh, people
1: question him on that. Do you feel like it's weird that you're, like, talking? (laughs) Yeah, like, (laughs) you know.
0: Aren't you supposed to just go out and hit people and be like, no, shut up, here I go. Uh, But he could, you know, sometimes he didn't know when to stop. He was a weird sort of Ogden Nash
1: of, uh, of, a. talking boxers yeah. that you just go out there and rhyme and had that whole like you know i mean the whole game was like hey i'm the greatest in the world i'm gonna burn him up uh and you're right sometimes he didn't even to the point where he would hurt people yeah because of it and then later when he realized what he'd done no one felt worse about it than him yeah you know because it was just like it's just i thought
0: we all understood this was just part of the whole game of doing this yeah but sometimes he'd he'd go too far but yeah that was the thing he'd go too far and realize it that he is a a legitimately good man who had you know he happens to box yes and that's what this really reinforces he happens to box and he this gives him a pulpit where he can talk about things where he can say no i'm not going to go to vietnam i don't care if it means you take away my, my boxing license if the important thing to do here is to say no and to say that uh, this is this war is wrong, I'm going to do that. That's I mean, the most important were, thing.
1: They were willing to pretty much just say, "You'll just be kind of a figurehead. We're not really going to put you in the shit." And he's
0: like, "Absolutely not." Yeah, no. that's even worse than yeah. Uh, in fact, he's going. That's even worse than me actually being in the shit. To be the figurehead, to be the, uh, the, shut the Judas down, goat, he shut down
1: his career at its prime. Yeah, because for years, because he. Was it? It was morally wrong. He believed in his soul. The war was morally wrong, and went around making a point that letting everybody know that this is true. These hippies that are protesting
0: it—they're the ones with courage. Was
1: his viewpoint
0: on yeah. this? And the really fascinating thing about this documentary is it's—it's it's a documentary about a man who is still alive, but that can't be involved with it because his Parkinson's is so incredibly bad. Right. He's basically incapacitated. You know, really would not be able to talk. him And he's not on camera at any point apart from uh, in archive footage and there's you know they the family gives him incredible access yeah. including to the you know what, he'd do, what he do would he he tape conversations with his kids with his parents uh with his with his wife yeah, just, from, know, just 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 to do it just because yeah. he said you and it's this is fascinating line that he says like you never know in the moment when this thing is important he says the one thing i got about my childhood is that i don't have these memories I don't have these moments. And you get this feeling of this guy who is incredibly kind, incredibly giving, incredibly thoughtful, really super smart, would have been successful in pretty much anything he wanted to do. He just happens to do it through the field of boxing. And this is what this film does extraordinarily well. Agreed. Um, As our lead documentaries go, I think there's only one other one um, that... Even comes close, which was, um, one of the 30 for 30 docs from ESPN, uh, I fought Ali, right. um, which is great. And that is, you know, basically every single one of the, his surviving opponents talks about what it was like to be in the ring with Muhammad Ali. And I, you know, and again, he is completely absent from that discussion. It is all about what people remember of him. The, you know, they're, they're really interesting count and, uh, and, and, uh, point and counterpoint, uh, about, the man, this is this is a a, a stellar stellar documentary, yeah. You know, and you do have to go in realizing this is not just about Muhammad Ali the boxer. That's really only about a third of the film. It's actually about him about his him in the ring. And it's very moving.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, there are points here I found myself tearing up. I mean, there's a scene where they interview one of his ex-wives, mind you, one of his ex-wives who is so moved herself while talking about what a saint she thought Muhammad Ali is, she starts crying during the interview. She's just like, he is one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. And it's like, that's his ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Holy shit. Uh, this, this even comes with a series of uh, bonus featurettes that are basically – they they feel more like deleted sequences that all have like a theme like family boxing what have you. And there's an interesting bit on one of them where with Chris Christopherson who is not actually in the movie anywhere else who also has. A well, it, I think where they really like, just
0: couldn't fit anything else in there. Right. And this is a well, jam packed film. It
1: it feels complete at the end, and yep. those things are just nice little cherries on the uh, on top. This is a terrific documentary, you know, and it, it it's the type of film that makes you aspire to be better. Yeah, um, and we are giving it away. On Blu-ray. Yay. Hey, hey,
0: <laughs> today. Okay, and the giveaway, <laughs> what you've got to do to receive this on Blu-ray is, uh, again, follow us at oneofus.net um, and tweet at us with the hashtag AliGiveaway and... Whew. What you think? What's it going to be? If you could see. Okay, hush. Um, Muhammad Ali rap battle, who against? A rap battle? Rap battle. Who would you most like to see Muhammad Ali in a rap battle against? And, because, you know, I mean, that's one of the things they don't touch on in kind of like with some of the cultural impact is that a lot of, you know, his, his influence on, on rap. You know, those, you know, those early promos that he did, you know, it's there. You can really huh. feel the bombast uh, and the arrogance, of, like the, I can back it up, right. and the lyricism of it. You know, he is an influence, but who would you like to see uh, him go toe-to-toe in a rap battle? With? And
1: go ahead and link in the comments if there's one of those historical... Rap battle videos out there that already has them, so people know not that one
0: yeah <laughs> so who would you who would you really like to see see uh, Ali you know go toe to toe against like eight mile style that's a good one Thank I, you. I would like to see that
1: uh all right well that brings us to the end finally of this epically length episode of News, we
0: did pretty good at two
1: uh, 20 for as many titles oh, as we can. Oh my goodness, had.
0: this was, uh, thank you for sticking through this, this marathon. Uh, That's a lot, a lot of titles. Boy, you should have seen what our watching weeks were like. Uh, Holy crap. We watched all this stuff. My eyes are melting. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you so much for sticking through, sticking with this weekend. Uh, yeah, you, please follow us at, uh, one of uh, one of us, uh, net, on Twitter. Uh, you can follow Richard on Twitter at, YorkshireTX. And you can follow me at Chris Cox Credit a critic god i can't speak i'm um, out of words don't forget you know as we said if you buy any of these titles through through the page or go through the go through the page and then buy anything else at amazon we, uh, a portion of that revenue goes to the the site don't forget that, that you, we are getting to the christmas season we are getting extremely close to when you might want to think about uh, presents for people and uh, you know uh sponsoring the site Never hurts. Yeah, just saying. Subscribe to the
1: site. All of your Christmas presents, as well, can, through could those be, Amazon could links. Be, you
0: know, but you can actually become a subscriber to the site, get access to all the bonus extras and features, including uh, special bonus uh, uh, commentary tracks. You're not going to hear anywhere else. And we may, we may. I uh, haven't told you about this yet. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Uh, there may be a little, a couple of little nice Christmas surprises coming your way. So that's all I'm saying. Oh, all boy. I'm saying. Oh, boy. So uh, anyway. <laughs> Let's let, let's let these good people get on with it.
1: Yeah, and for the record, uh, my wish list is also linked on my profile. Just saying. Um, Mine will anyway, be. Yeah, I can do that for you. Mine will be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It will be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening to Digital Noise, where no release is too big, no release is too small. From I Am Ali to... Uh, uh, catastrophe. Catastrophe. We review them all.